Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 64. Matt is here with me as always and my name is Scad. Let's get going for episode 64, The Trappings of Power. Welcome, 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 my friends. Uh, we're glad you joined us as we continue our reread of A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. We're reading them in that special tandem order that we call A Feast with Dragons. You can find it on our website, davosfingers.com, or at afeastwithdragons.com. That was originally developed by Game of Owns, another fellow podcast that does a great job and did a great job with this reading order. Today, we're going to be reading Melisandre's POV chapter. She's got what? one. Yes, and we shall be reading it. Uh, from Feast, we're going to be reading Sam 4 and Cat of the Canals. Who could that be? And then jumping back to Dance, we'll be reading Brand 3 and Tyrion 8. That's right. And we've got a few announcements to uh, to jump through real quick here. First of all, I'm sure everyone saw, this was, uh, we're recording here, the Friday after the Monday night trailer reveal for Star Wars. Uh, I know, I know I got my tickets that night after putting the kids down to bed and Matt, I think you did too. Yes. Uh, Mrs. Matt was very diligent for me in getting the tickets and we, we got them. We got them. Yeah. Nine, nine twenty, I think is when we're going to see it. Now you're going as a family, right? Yeah. We're taking uh, all the kids and everything. I've been trying to show my kids Star Wars Rebels and they're kind of, they like it. But they're mm-hmm. also still like scared of it. It's got you know <laughs> the dark side comes up and the Inquisitor. Uh, yeah, they get it's it's just I couldn't I couldn't do it this time. Maybe maybe when they're episode young. nine comes out they'll they'll be ready. Yeah, they're young. Yeah, yeah, I got three and three and five. So we'll see. Yeah. Five and seven maybe they can handle it. Yeah. So uh, anyway, the trailer bonkers, right? Have yeah, any, man. Have any thoughts that jump out? Is it just me or do trailers get longer? <laughs> it's like it's almost like a mini movie at this point. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, I don't know. A, a little uh, a mini movie meant to mislead, right? Oh, oh, definitely. Yeah, they did that with uh, with episode seven too, and I think they enhanced that with this one. Yeah. Um, what parts specifically were you thinking of? Well, that obvi- could be misleading. Obviously, the very end. Where where Ray is asking for someone to show her her place or where she belongs in this, and then, uh-huh. and then it cuts to Kylo Ren offering a hand. Yeah, Th- that could be it. But you know, if you look at the backgrounds, it doesn't look like the same scene um, that's that's going on. And but but yeah, I mean, super impactful. My kids watching it because you know, like they kind of know they read some stories and stuff, and they're like, why why is Ray gonna be bad? And, uh, you know, it's tricky. Yeah, that was funny to see. Uh, did you see Kevin Smith's review of it? No. Of the trailer? No, I didn't. He, he, he did a live stream of him watching it and yeah. stuff. He's like, oh, that's totally, they're totally just effing with us here. Yeah. During that part with Kylo and, and Ray. He's like, yeah. look at the backgrounds. They're totally different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, the... Um, the 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 most maybe the most impactful part is uh kind of in the middle there when when Luke is saying uh this is not going to go the way you think uh-huh. right you have no idea who he's talking to and you, you know you assume it's ray oh yeah uh, because they're you know he's on the island or whatever but uh, uh 
I think that was my favorite part of the trailer. I just Hamill's an interesting dude. You know, he's had he's had a weird career, and uh, you know, he's doing mostly voice work at this point. But he kind of had this huge hit in Star Wars early, and kind of I feel like he kind of couldn't get out of his own way for for like an acting career after that. And I'm I'm really hopeful. Like he it, he feels locked in with these previews, like. I'm. I'm really. I hope this is really a chance for him to shine. Well, I think he. Yeah, I would agree. I think he knows and respects the heck out of the Luke Skywalker character for the reasons that you mentioned. It was such a huge part and huge role, life changing for him. That yeah. he's not gonna. He's not gonna mess this one up. Yeah, but, I'm excited uh, for him. Yeah, you know, it's hard to beat a role like Cockknocker <laughs> from yeah. Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, but. Yes. He might be able to pull this one off. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope I liked so. that part. I also liked the uh, the potential, and this could also be misleading, of Kylo flying into the um, Resistance freighter ship or the yeah, uh, warship. And targeting his Almost, mom. And it looks like he's targeting mama. Yeah. That that could potentially be a big deal. That Killing could be... both parents. That is irredeemable, my friend. What I'm really excited about is to see a Leia force moment there. I'm hopeful. Yeah. Who knows? Cause her, you know, her use of the force has been different than anyone else. Really. We know it, kind of more premonition feeling kind of things and less, you know, destruction or, you know, action, but you know, in the novels and stuff, they have moments where she's kind of, where she's kind of like sensing things and feeling things. I don't know, but mm-hmm. she kind of goes up by her gut because she hasn't, devoted herself to the training right right. you know focusing more on the political career and everything yeah Yeah. but you get the sense that the force is still kind of like in there for her helping guide oh absolutely yeah Yeah. and and i think she knows how to listen to it right and and you know make decisions based on that but yeah yeah Yeah. uh anything else you want uh you want to talk through on the on the on the trailer there you know i'm I'm trying not to get as excited about this one. <laughs> you t- what do you I'm, mean about this one? You say that with like everyone. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, you and I geeked out like crazy over the episode seven one. We that did. was fun. Yeah. And Rogue One, I was a little bit calmer. And this one, I'm a little bit calmer. So I'm like, I'm getting better with each one. But at some point, I just want to like, I've watched the trailer probably 10 times. Yeah. And now I just want to just like, just let it come to me, you yeah. know, just yeah. get to the theater and just let it wash over me. I don't want to, I don't like, I haven't been like watching the in-depth review videos on it or besides that Kevin Smith one or like trying to think too hard into things. I just, at this point, I just want to let it come to me. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. I, before, before and directly after the force awakens came out, I was, super geeked up and I was watching a you know a, a Star Wars show that comes out every every week on Collider and I was super into it and yeah I'm just kind of letting it just kind of calming down a little bit <laughs> less time too with all the other stuff we're doing but yeah, yeah. all right yeah so we've on? got a couple months left yes we're almost there uh, something that was released recently yeah. was a new book called The Book of Swords. It is a uh, compilation. What do you call those? I just suddenly lost the word. 
But it's a collection, collection. a collection of short stories in one book. Uh, and this collection, they're all fantasy stories, and it includes one by George R. R. Martin. You've probably already heard it, heard of it. It's called The Sons of the Dragon. It chronicles the reigns, it says on George's Nauta blog, the reigns of the second and third Targaryen kings, Aenys, or Anus, <laughs> yeah. and Magor the Cruel, along with all their family members and associates and people like that. Uh, it's out. It came out on Tuesday, was it? The 10th or something? I think it was. Uh, I haven't picked it up yet. Have you? No, I mean, I I'm... you tell me if you had. <laughs> I would. I'd brag about it uh, to enhance my own status as a fan. Uh, I've been really bad at all of these supplemental... You know, I read, obviously, Night of the Seven Kingdoms and loved it. Uh, but all the other supplemental stories, yeah, I've been bad. I haven't read any of them. And I feel I feel like a, a bad fan. Nah, you just read what you want to read. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I've I've read the other ones up to this point. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not rushing out to get this one. I mean, the Targaryen history is cool and all, and any content from George is great content. But I don't know. It's just not uh, making me salivate. Yeah. Well, I think I keep. I also keep hoping that he'll put all of these short stories in a collection. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. No. I'm also, frankly, I'm a little terrified to get a compilation like that because I'm afraid I'll fall in love, like I did with with Rothfuss, and then have some back catalog of another amazing author to read. And I know I don't have time <laughs> to do it, <laughs> so I'm a little I'm a little wary of these compilations for that reason. Yeah, if I don't read it now, I'll definitely probably, well, not definitely, but maybe pick it up during uh, the holidays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got my plans for what I'm going to read for the holidays already, <laughs> sadly, for, for when we do do a little break. But uh, after we finish this reread, uh, I think I'm going to put all those at the top of the list. So, All right, uh, last announcement. Uh, I talked earlier this spring about... Uh, how I went to Ice and Fire Con and had a great time meeting tons of people uh, in the fandom and just having conversation after conversation after conversation and it was just a, an amazing time. I'm going back again next spring. Um, time's ticking, guys. Uh, we do have a special a special code if you want uh, to get a discount. It's FINGERS. And uh, if you guys want to come out and meet us but honestly meet a million other <laughs> cooler people than us or at least than me i'm not sure whether matt's going uh yet but uh me neither jump in and 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 we'll see there it's in ohio this year and uh i bet it's just gonna be a blast ohio usually is uh sure mm -hmm. i can't dispute nor support that argument <laughs> it's gonna be a great time guys <laughs> yeah all right uh moving on so uh we are spoiler free until the end of this podcast for a special segment that we will call davos after dark uh we'll warn you when we get there so if you're reading along at our pace um you can jump off at that time i know we do have some readers doing that uh we'll warn you you can jump off and avoid any spoilers yeah, I was thinking that we didn't have any, but uh, we've heard from a few recently that have said they do that. So that's cool. Yeah, I'm yep. glad that they feel like they can still listen to the podcast and um, safely. Got an email today from somebody that said that, I think. Yeah. Speaking of that correspondence, we love to hear from you guys. It's like it's like crack to us hearing from you guys. Um, 
three years into this thing and still getting emails and tweets and Facebook messages just makes our day. So if you want to contact us just to make our day or if you've got critiques or whatever, you can always reach out to us through any of our mediums. Uh, our, our website, of course, is DavosFingers.com. Email is WeAreDavosFingers at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle where we spend a lot of our time is at Davos Fingers, and we're also on Facebook. Uh, or you can cruise over to patreon.com slash Davos Fingers to learn more about how you can support us via Patreon. Oh, man, there was, All a, right. there was a good Twitter bit today, this afternoon, about uh, Edric and Gendry and their futures in the books. It was a, it was a good yeah. conversation. Yeah, then it uh, branched off later into Maya and yes. got all sorts of crazy. But yeah, um, yeah, we've had some some fun chats lately. Yep. yep. All right. Okay. Uh, Want me to dive in on Mel? Yeah, let's get into this friggin' episode, man. So, like I said, our first chapter is going to be Melisandre. Let's get into this lady's head and see if we can figure her out a little bit. And uh, Scad's got that one. I do indeed. If you could see what R'hllor has in store You could see hope beyond the darkest night Shadows chased away by light Red star bleeds and darkness gathers Lightbringer and weaving glamours True men find the courage to fight Men whose hearts are fire and light I've been at this for so long Blurring lines of what is right or wrong Look into the fires, praying to see what the Lord of Light thinks of destiny. Sure, I'll fail, but I'll always try to catch a glimpse of his aura high. The red glow of your blessed flames, Melisandre, your servant remains. Melisandre consults her flames for visions. Visions of Stannis. Visions of the pale girl retreating toward the wall. The flames are hard to read, and she must always be careful of simply seeing what she wants to see. This is the first time we get to look into Mel's private thoughts, and it is scrumdiddlyumptious. Anyway, she sees almost everything but Stannis and the pale girl she's looking for, including a corpse-white wooden face, a boy with a wolf's face, loads of skulls, Jon Snow's face, and uh, more skulls. Among other things, lots more things. We'll go into that later. But when Devin asks her what she saw, all she can do is ask for a drink. Not that kind of drink, just some water. Here's the thing. We've had about three and a half books of seeing Melisander and the whole Stannis side of this story, to be honest, through other people's eyes, most notably those of Davos, a narrator that seems beyond reproach due to his honesty and forthrightness in general. And in these three and a half books, this reader, for one, had felt that not everything was as it seemed with Mel, that there was perhaps another game afoot, that perhaps something was rotten in Denmark. But this chapter negates almost all of that. We have a main line here directly into Mel's thoughts and feelings, and what we see is an earnest servant to the Lord of Light, completely dedicated to R'hllor's cause, and fully believing in Stannis as his instrument. But we also see a woman that's a little bit tragic in a way. She's struggling with doubt, aware of the expectations upon her from others, that they think they'll think she's a fraud or a phony if she can't produce facts and figures that they expect to hear. We see a woman that, despite knowing she has the gift and is the best at this in all of her order, that is cloaked in fear that she might get it wrong. Not the ever-glowing, confident witch that she projects to those around her. And it throws the whole fucking world into upheaval for me. It is weird to read. Anyway, back to the story. 
Devin brings her some water, and we learn that Davos' son was spared the trip south, much to his chagrin, by Mel herself. Davos is a good man, loyal to Stannis, and she doesn't want to see him hurt again by losing another son. What the actual fuck, you guys? Mel has, like, feelings. It is almost dawn now, and she hasn't slept again. She doesn't need much anyway, besides sleep is a little death, la petite mort, and dreams are just the whisperings of the other anyway. One day she hopes to be free of any need for sleep and dreams. Mel asks Devin now to bring her rattle shirt and also orders breakfast, though, like Superman, she doesn't really need to eat. As she waits, she considers Jon Snow. She needs Jon, but he has not been very responsive to her whims and desires, never coming to visit her like she wants, and frequently ignoring her presence when she goes to him. Rattleshirt arrives, interrupting her thoughts, without his customary bones this time, but wrapped in something else. Shifty, shadowy things that kind of surround him. She warns him that he needs to wear the bones, that they help with the glamour. Hmm. That men see what they expect to see, and the bones are a big part of that. Hmm. Mel imparts to Rattleshirt a mission. To fetch this ashy rider from where what they deduce is the land around Long Lake. They need to earn John's trust, and Melisander is trying to convince Rattleshirt that saving John's sister is the best way performing a task that John cannot, through duty, do himself, but that he wants to happen desperately. They're interrupted by a horn blast. One blast. Rangers returning. Dead rangers. Rattleshirt stays in her chambers to await her return, and Mel goes to counsel John. And indeed, Mel was right, as John and co are gathered around three shafts with Black Brother heads adorning them, missing their eyes and covered in the morning snow. John walks through the tunnel with Mel, asking of the other six rangers that he sent away. And what else can she tell him of wildling attacks? Will they attack the Shadow Tower? Will they attack Eastwatch by the sea? Yes, Eastwatch, she replies, remembering the towers submerged in water within her visions, though she admits she doesn't know when. She entreats him to come with her to King's Tower, to her chambers, and he does so, mistrusting all the way, she senses, but still coming. They arrive, and Mel and Rattleshirt lay out their plan. John can't save Arya, but Rattleshirt can. As predicted, John is not having anything to do with this at first. Not trusting Rattleshirt or Darth, thinking he's as like to rape or kill Arya as save her. With no choice remaining, Mel reveals her magic. Magic that has kept Rattleshirt safe since the wildlings came through the wall. Magic that has in fact transformed Mance Raider into Rattleshirt. John is amazed and suspicious as he sees Mance standing before him where the Lord of Bones once stood. And Mel has to explain how glamours work, not unlike Azim explaining the spyglass in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. This concept is just, it's beyond John and it's confusing him. Anyway, there it is. Mance lives. He owes John his life for forgiving the sins beyond the wall, and plus, they have his son under their control. In short, Mel says, they can trust him to save Arya. And John should trust him. And that's the end of the chapter. Snap! Whoa! Yeah. So, Mel means well, apparently. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. Witches have feelings, too. Subjectively. Um, Mance Raider's alive. Whoa. Yeah. We got this glamour stuff going on. Yeah. This is seriously one of the most, like, just jam-packed chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. It's crazy. It was really hard to summarize, too. I bet. That's why I let you do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean... This I feel like, um, you know, I, it's weird. I wasn't I wasn't that engaged in forums and 
and Reddit and all these things when the when this book came out. And so sure. I I don't remember I don't remember the communal the community like reaction, but I feel like this chapter just like flipped the world over for people. That it was just it should topsy turvy yeah. fandom on this, right? Because we, it just you you we thought she was deceiving in some way for some purpose, but mm-hmm. it feels like she's just honest. She had these malicious intentions, yeah, that were just like brimming under the surface. And what we find out is she does do some questionable things, but it's uh, it's for what she believes is a greater good. And like you said in your summary, she's one hundred percent behind Stannis to the point that she's trying to see him even when she's not. <laughs> it's yeah. funny how she she. She talks in the first couple pages about how a lot of people who look into the flames make the mistake of seeing only what they want to see. Yeah. And then she just keeps saying, show me Stannis, Lord. Show me your king, your instrument. She's wanting to see Stannis so bad. Um, But she doesn't, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we'll get in a future chapter on this episode, we'll get somebody else that that reads the flames. And she claims to be... um, by far the best at reading the flames of 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 those in her order um mm-hmm. and i wonder if it's still true um because it seems it's it really does seem like she struggles to me a little bit yeah it's interesting because we really have nothing to compare yeah. it to Stuff. yeah 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 i mean she she displays this outward confidence and inside we see a secure in insecurity and then you know later like you alluded to we're going to see makoro and uh you know, he seems pretty confident in what he's seeing, but how confident yeah. is he? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but she's certainly trying. She's certainly trying. Yeah. This East Watch thing is is an example I wanted to talk about. So she sees in part of her vision, she sees what could be mm-hmm. East Watch, could mm-hmm. be, mm-hmm. and and instead of saying could be, she says yes, yes East Watch. Even though she remembers Eastwatch looking different. Right. She was just there a few months ago. And she's like, well, it wasn't the same, but maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it's been a while since Rilor was there and doesn't remember what it looks like. like you know, what like, she wants to see. More yeah. seeing what she wants to well, see. Well, yeah. I, yeah, but also I get the feeling that she knows she's lying about it, but, mm. but she feels the pressure to tell him something useful. And so she lets herself be convinced. She's like, oh yeah, it must have been. Yes, Eastwatch. Yeah. Yes, you let let John fill in the blanks. I gotta relate it back to the yeah to Nightwatch somehow. Somehow, yeah, make something relevant to him. And if I if it ends up not being that, then I'll say, man, those fires are tough to read. Must yeah. have, must my eyes must have been watering. Yeah. Uh, in the end, with with all of this, with her. Um, she still is extremely dangerous, obviously. There's still some magical powers that we are – we've learned a lot from this chapter, and there's more that we need to learn to completely understand what Melisandre does and can do. But <clears throat> it it's still – what worries me most, though, isn't not so much what she can do, but what she can't see and what she refuses to see. Does that make sense? I want to like know that, what you mean, but maybe. What is she going to miss seeing because of her single-minded 
focus on Stannis, you know? Like, she's focusing so hard on seeing Stannis, what is she going to miss? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, she... in. If for for all of that, and she's looking for the the rider as well, and not seeing them, mm-hmm. she does see some things and identify them, things sure. that she's told John before yep. about mm-hmm. you know the danger that he's in, yep. and so she is seeing the signs anyway. But yep. yeah, but, but this is the first we know, the first we've seen. Maybe she has missed things. We don't know. Yeah, and what I worry is that she's so just single minded, focused on that that you know some big thing will present itself from Rilor if he's really there showing her things. Yeah. And she completely misses it. And, you know, to yeah. everyone's detriment. I don't envy her. I don't know. Trying, trying to interpret it. Uh, you know, she she has mm-hmm. one... I don't want to get too deep into these because I think we'll go into a lot of them with, with, with Davos After Dark, but um, the one that, you know, where she she's in her brain questioning, like, what am I seeing? She says, was this the enemy? And and she's referring to the uh, the pale face, right? And you know, yeah, she's got to like interpret all these things and string it together into something meaningful for her. Mm-hmm. Tough business, man. Oh yeah, yep. She uh, she mentions of how she's practiced that art for years and had paid the price. Yeah, it seems that even it takes a physical toll on somebody. Well, she bleeds to, down her thigh. In the middle yeah. of this thing, I don't know whether that hurts her or not. Like it, you, it, it strikes you with you know the imagery of like you know her, her period or, or something, right? Which and we've seen that the magic can relate to <laughs> her sexual organs in some way with the creation of these shadow babies. Uh, is it is it like does does seeing the fire like get her? I don't know, like sexually engaged in some way i don't know because with melisandre it's so weird right we talked about this clear back and i think when we were on another book uh, about how shadow binding is something completely separate from just the faith of relore yes yeah and somehow she's hybriding the two and combining them yeah and who I mean, knows we, what's going on for her <laughs> i mean we don't know much about that right but the shadow binding yeah. is definitely you know, from the uh, a shy kind of component, I think, if I remember our discussion before. Yeah. And, you know, the R'hllor stuff is, I think, comes from there as well, but is that's not where she got it, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> lots of questions. Uh, let me let's 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 take this in a philosophical road real quick. Oh, is Mel a good guy? Good, good person. A good, a, you know, on the good good guy team. Well, everyone's the hero of their own story, right? Yeah. Um, she certainly, you know, we could have this discussion with just about any character in yeah. A Song of Ice yeah, and Fire. Yeah, She certainly wants to fight and defeat the others. Yep. Which seems to be the common enemy of everybody else. All right, let me ask Who a knows question. about them? Let me ask a, a, diff- a variation of that question. Is Mel a good person? It's different than being a good guy. I, judging from this POV, yeah, and the world she comes from, I would say, yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah, <laughs> I'm leaning towards yes. Yeah, 
just because she is devoted to um, to to winning, to defeating evil, what she sees as evil. However, I look at people who we do equate as good people, like Davos and Eddard Stark, and one thing that I think we can agree on makes them good people is they're always looking out for the individual. Davos with Edric Storm, mm-hmm. um, Eddard with uh, Cersei and Jaime's children, um, all these different people, yep. right? Yep. And and Melisandre is like, sorry, dude, you might be a good guy and all, but I got to sacrifice somebody and you're it today. Yep. You know? So that's she, what makes the, the decision hard. She's what are also, your well, she's also very deceitful. While, uh-huh. while she is very clearly honest with herself about what she wants and what she's trying to accomplish, she has no problem lying to others. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes you, I don't know, not a great person. Yeah. So she's kind of an anti-hero, isn't she? I don't know. I it, It's a weird take, man. I mean, before this chapter, before this POV, you know, when I read it the first time, before that, uh-huh. I definitely didn't think she was a good person. Sure. I, I was like, she's a charlatan. She's using all these tricks to mislead people. She's got some sort of ulterior motive. Uh, but reading this 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 chapter softened me uh, sure. on her. But I still don't Absolutely. think she's a good person. Uh-huh. But mostly good. because of the deceit. What you brought up is something I hadn't thought of, but it's also very true. She is definitely willing to sacrifice innocence for her own gain. And that's mm-hmm. that's a sure sign. Sure. Uh Man, we should probably not let this chapter escape us without talking about glamours and what's going on with those things, hey? Yeah. I mean, you did a good job of it in your summary. Um, you did a great job. Oh, thanks. But uh, a lot of weird components, right? So through Melisandre's magic, she can cast an illusion over a person. She calls it weaving light as others weave thread. So it's almost like she's changing and playing with the light around yes. a person yeah, to make them appear to be like someone else. Yeah. But she needs some help in doing that, right? Mm-hmm. In this case, rattle shirts, bones, yeah. uh, carried with them a bit of his essence. Um, she calls it a man's shadow can be drawn forth from items such as this and draped about another person. Yeah. It's That's it's so crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's this can happen in real life, uh, or in the movies. I guess is the example I'm going to, which I just thought of. <laughs> like, uh, oh, okay. But did you ever see Streetcar Named Desire? No. Oh my God, Matt. Uh it's uh, yep, it's good. Uh, I'll bring it next time we see each other. But um, all all of the greatness aside, the the point that ma- that matters here is one of the characters is uh, older than she lets on. And is trying to hide that from someone she's trying to woo, basically. And she spends an evening where they go out on a date. She spends all night kind of trying to stay in the shadow, to stay away from the light. Sure. Because uh-huh. if if she's staying in the muted light, then he can't see. And then there's a dramatic moment where, I can't remember, it's been a few years since I've seen it, but uh, he like pulls her into the light like aggressively almost because he gets the sense that she is misleading him somehow. And... Uh-huh. And it's stark. I, like I get the I get the sense the makeup people in Hollywood like 
had fun making her look even older than she was, right? But it's it's like a stark contrast to what you've been looking at. And yeah, that's with no magic. She can easily take this magic and just kind of like weave a little bit of magic and make you, you know, see a lip that sticks out further than you think and grow a beard and, you know, extend the brows or something. Like, yeah, sure, why not? Cool. You make it sound very easy. Ah. <laughs> hey, man, they've been doing it in Hollywood forever. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting nevertheless. And another component to this is that it appears that um, the ruby that Melisandre wears about her neck and the ruby that Mance slash Rattleshirt is wearing on his wrist somehow kind of would tethers be the yeah. right word? Tethers uh, Mance to Melisandre. But a tether with is, teeth. It's a, it's oh a little, yeah. it's like a violent tether. It's going to go in and bite you. Yeah. And gnaw on the wrist a little bit. Yeah. Mance, Mance doesn't like it. No. Um, he's one of the free folk. He doesn't like being bound to something. Uh, but indeed, very interesting. Um, a new trick that we haven't seen Melisandre use yet. And it's got some uh, implications that I think we may end up discussing in our dad segment. Sure. Um, but interesting nevertheless. I don't really um, have much more to say about it, but yeah, or or for me about the chapter, there's just a couple a couple little things, maybe. Um, I, I don't really have anything to say because I don't think we know a lot. But uh, Mel as a slave, I don't think we really uh-huh. knew that before. You maybe nope. you could have assumed it having read the series and then gone back and, and thought about it. Maybe you could have have assumed that based on what we saw in the Tyrion chapter. Um, but yeah, I mean, I get the sense that she was a slave, kind of like those slaves that we heard Tyrion and Jorah talk about um, uh-huh. that are raised, you know, from near birth to practice. Um, right. So interesting. Uh, the other thing is, and this is, uh, I think, the inspiration for your chapter title, um, this this whole discussion about uh, power and, and the trappings of, of that power. Um, I don't know. I, do you want to go into that at all, or do you want to save it for later, or...? No, tell me what you what you mean. What caught you about it? Well, what I, ca- I, go ahead. I think the, I thought the uh, yeah, I did pick the title because of that. It's an actual line in the Mel chapter, the trappings of power. Yeah. Um, and I and I think it kind of is a theme, in a way, throughout the other chapters as well. But what stuck out to you from well, that? Well, yeah, I associated it with the power resides where men think it resides. The, the absolutely old, the old Varys thing. Um, mm-hmm. And this is her same version of that, and, and a way for George to weave that theme in through through Mel. Um, yeah, because people people see the things that they associate with power, and if you do those things they associate with power, they'll think you have it. And mm-hmm. um, you know the guards, and uh, you know this the the fact that she never kind of gives off any sense of weakness. Um, you know these things, and she admits that. To, yeah. to herself as she's, you know, refilling her potions and powder pockets that she's got all over her. Yes. Uh, that she, she, she utilizes that, um, the trappings of power philosophy that she's got to look like she can, she can walk the walk. Right. Um, and she hopes to not have to use the powders someday, but for now it gives off the, uh, the essence of power. So she's got to stick with them. Yeah. That's the second time yeah. I think that she talks about it in this chapter. She also mentioned that in relation to John to John snow, yeah. how he doesn't, he doesn't ever give anyone the impression that he answers to her. He yeah. must always make it seem that she is below him. 
right? That he uh-huh. has control. And because power resides where people think it resides. Yeah. So. And which is interesting because I do think that he he does that on purpose a little bit. Um, but I also think that he's not thinking about her as much as she thinks he is. Like, I think yeah, that he's yeah. so busy with other things that it's not so much that he's actively avoiding or ignoring her. He's just got a lot on his mind. Yeah. It's like at night when he goes to bed, he's like, Oh yeah, Mel, it'd be great if she told me more about the wildling attacks tomorrow. Uh-huh. Oh, well I'll get a couple hours of sleep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, another interesting component though of Mel is how she doesn't have to sleep or eat and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, totally weird. Sleep is a little death. That reminded me of the uh, the famous Nas line where he says in his famous song, NY State of Mind, I never sleep because sleep is the cousin of death. If I never sleep, because sleep is the cousin of death. Beyond the walls of intelligence, life is defined. I think of crime when I'm in a New York state of mind. Yeah. Uh, or Charles Barkley, perhaps less or maybe more famously, depending on your social circle. I'll sleep when I'm dead. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Yep. Well, just that idea that sleeping is somehow letting your guard down, right? Yep. And uh, who knows what can happen then. So that's something that's got to wear on Mel a little bit, this constant vigilance. I think that's another reason that she doesn't ever allow her flame to go out. She mentions the flame must never go out, you know? There's this constant sense of vigilance and being prepared and... Yeah, stuff it, like that. it almost yeah. feels like fear too. Like she's legitimately afraid of the darkness. Uh huh. It feels. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm taking it too far. But no, I I agree with you. And I think the reason is is because you can't see what's going to happen, right? Yeah, if maybe. you're in the dark, if you're asleep, yeah. you can't see what's coming. Right. Um, so it's it's related to death. It's the cousin of death. Yeah, that dreams are the whispers of the other. That's creepy. Yeah, great line. Yeah. Great line. Yeah. Okay. Well, I did want to spend more time on the Mel chapter just because it's of its significance. But uh, you mentioned you had a couple more things. Was that it? No, that was it. That was okay. it. Yeah, uh, I think. I mean, yeah, I could probably talk about this chapter for an hour with you if you wanted, but I, we should probably move on. Uh, to be honest, all the chapters are pretty rich um, yeah. in this. Maybe the Tyrion one's a little less so, but um, yeah, they're all they're all pretty rich. Tyrion's was definitely my least favorite, but even so, it had some great stuff in it. So I'd agree with you. Well, we've got a special uh, new thing coming up for this next chapter summary, right? Yes. Yeah, very special. One of the the perks, I guess you could call it, of supporting us on Patreon at a certain level, and I didn't go and remind myself of what the name of that level is. Do you remember? (laughs) Uh, I believe it's the reach around level. <laughs> reach around level, you're probably right, uh, on Patreon, is that you have the option, if you would like, to write a chapter summary for any chapter that you would like and that we would then read on the podcast. Uh, and so we've got one of our favorite blood writers has taken advantage of that. She mentioned that this is one of, if not her favorite chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, Sam four of feast for crows. And so this was from Beth and I checked with her to make sure we could call her whatever we wanted to call her. So B word, Beth, uh, whatever you want. She wrote a wonderful chapter summary that, uh, scad is going to read. In fact, we got a few things from Beth tonight. Just thinking we might call this the Beth episode, <laughs> but, uh, we do, we do. And do this... you... go ahead. 
I was just going to say, uh, you won the coin talk. Yeah, it was a little riddle competition, and uh, I think Matt and I are both bad at riddles, and uh, I would happen to be less bad in that moment. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I get the honor. I hope, uh, I hope Beth, that I, I do you proud here. So, here we go. You don't think that you belong here, but boy, let me tell you, you do. Sam will Tarly, they can hardly keep your dreams from coming true. Slaying things that'll make the bravest shiver. Time and time again, boy, you deliver. Slaying, fighting, reading, and writing. Sam will, boy, this world was made for you. Lightning crashes, and the old maester dies. His intentions nice. fall to the floor. It's, of course, uh, lyrics associated to the song Lightning Crashes by Live. Hopefully we'll drop a clip in Frickin' Beth. Jeez. Yeah, it's one of my favorite songs. Lightning crashes, a new mother cries. Beautiful. Uh, okay, in all of Amon's talk of dragons and prophecy, he just wasn't strong enough to get to Old Town, or to Daenerys as he would have preferred. In the last days of Amon's life, he became convinced that Daenerys was the actual princess that was promised, as he had believed her brother, and his great-nephew Rhaegar, was before her. But not Stannis, as he had hoped and tried to believe. Amon begged Sam to make the maesters believe in the monsters marching on the wall, and to make the Citadel send a maester to Danny to counsel her. Amon admits that even at age 102, he fears death, and like many scientific minds, questions religion and what comes next. I'm just going to read you a quick passage from the chapter here, because it's haunting and scary for anyone that doesn't know what comes next. Death should hold no fear for a man as old as me. But it does. Isn't that silly? It's always dark where I am. So why should I fear the darkness? That I cannot help but wonder what will follow. When the last warmth leaves my body. Will I feast forever in the father's golden hall, as all the septons say? Will I talk with egg again? Find Darien whole and happy? Hear my sisters singing to their children? What if the horse lords have the truth of it? Will I ride through the night sky forever on a stallion made of flame? Or must I return again to this vale of sorrow? Who can say truly? Who has been beyond the wall of death to see? Only the whites. And we know what they are like. We know. As the journey gets rougher... Amon mostly sleeps. He occasionally calls out for Sam to tell him something important, but forgets what it is when Sam gets to him, or makes incoherent sentences, something about glass candles that won't light, eggs that would not hatch, and the Sphinx is the riddle, not the Riddler, whatever that meant. As Sam speaks to the life of his mentor, he has a hard time stringing words together to sum up such a long and extraordinary life. He was the blood of the dragon, and now his fire has gone out. Finishing in sobs... It's time to celebrate life, the Summer Islander way. Starting with the good stuff. Rum, a drink for dragons. 
Trying to ignore the fact that Amon's body is currently stuffed into a barrel of rum, since, rightly so, the captain won't let them make a pyre for him to, on the ship, and in death, Targaryens are always given to the flame. Sam expresses his regrets for Amon, even coming on this journey at all. He should have stayed at the wall and lived. Gilly reminds him that the Red Woman is only too eager to burn people for their king's blood, which is also why they baby-swapped Mansa's son for Gilly's. They decided a name for Dalla and Mansa's son. But when he's old enough, age two and not before, Amon Battlemore, Battleborn, or Amon Steelsong. Inevitably, as the rum flows, the inhibitions let go, and Sam, like his sworn brother John before him, falls into the arms of his wildling woman. Sam and Gilly engage in what can only be described as wet and squishy boat sex, aided, of course, by Gilly's hard, pink, slippery nipples, and Sam's ever-eager, fat, pink mast. I am your wife now, Gilly says to Sam. The next morning, Sam wakes up to Kothuromo, the captain of the Cinnamon Wind, calling for him to get to, his work, get to work on the ship. We learn that the cost of this journey was great, leaving Sam with only the clothes on his back and the horn he still carries that John found on the fist of the first men. As well as physical labor from Sam, and occasionally Gilly when she can bear her fears and face the wide open sea, Leaving Sam blistered and bruised, even as a man of the night's watch, he'd never worked as hard as he was now for passage on the cinnamon wind. All this Sam would have deemed a bargain had Amon survived the journey, of course. Painfully hungover, Sam reflects on his night with Gilly and his broken vows. Avoiding Gilly at every chance, and frankly becoming for a short time the biggest low-down, yellow-bellied coward there is. Until Jondo and his crewmate Ko Kojomo have a chat with Sam, explaining that grieving and loving and fucking are all normal and healthy. Not having sex is unnatural. Why be born with eyes only to keep them closed? In short, they tell him to face Gilly or jump ship. Knowing he'd never make it to shore if he jumped overboard, Sam pulls up his big boy panties, goes to Gilly to explain that if he could have a wife, she would be his. But he swore a vow to the trees. Gilly knows all about the trees. The trees keep us safe, she says. But at sea, there are no trees. And that's the end of the chapter. Thank you, Beth, for the wonderful words. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Sorry I stumbled there a few times. So. Uh, Sammy boy, you're a man now. You are a man. You fought it as hard as you could. Here, here you are. Yeah. Man, I just, I, I feel for him. Um, you know, he, he's got the, the part, part of this chapter that stood out to me the most is after they've had the sex and he's mm -hmm. laying there with her cuddled around him and he doesn't, the last thing he wants to do is get up and leave because he's so comfortable and frankly, probably so in love, uh, yeah, and yet absolutely. also feeling the immense weight of guilt that's upon him. And isn't that sad? And it is, and also the immense weight of rum in his belly that <laughs> is making him need to pee and or vomit. Uh, it's a place I've been, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that's not comfortable. Full I've, of rum? Uh, yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I just, I mean, I just feel for him. Poor guy. I mean, he, finally, he, has, he has what should be a great experience with a woman he loves, and all he has is 
all this negative. Well, yeah, you know, he has some positivity too, but he has all this negativity wrapped up in it. It's it's too bad. Yeah. 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 He beats. You know, Sam's mo is to beat himself up over things. Yep. Uh, and he's gonna do it for this too. And it's such a gray situation because he did take a vow. Mm-hmm. Um, but and you could say he did that freely, but also he really ish. didn't have a choice. Yeah, like, ish. what would he do if he didn't take the vow? <laughs> We've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. Do they really have a choice? Um, and and then saying, well, everyone else breaks their Night's Watch vow. Yeah, yeah, you can say that, but that's also kind of a lame excuse too. And we, you know, we know it. Uh, so it's it's this really weird thing, and but like uh, was it Kud, Kuja? What's her name? Koja, Ko, Kojamo, or Ko, or Kahuru that said, uh, "There's no shame in loving." That's what it comes back to, I think. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, if he's in he's in love with her, probably. And I love the line of his line there. You could write a song around this line. If I could take a wife, I would sooner have you than any princess or highborn maiden. Yeah, go Sam. You're just a good dude. I feel terrible that he feels that he feels so terrible. Yeah. Have you uh, have you ever had to deliver a eulogy, Matt? Um, in a sense, but not as no, no. I I performed kind of a a ceremony. Over a, the the graveside of my um, father-in-law, mm-hmm. that involved giving a prayer. Don't yeah. worry, it wasn't like me doing some crazy stuff. It was just simply a kind of a prayer. Um, I wasn't over my that. my father-in-law's grave when he was mm-hmm. buried. But uh, so that's kind of a eulogy. But no, yeah. you? No, it terrifies me. I um, <laughs> I'm great. At, I'm great at weddings. I can do you know. So when best, so when new life is kind of yeah. starting, best man things, those kind of speeches, fun things. I, I'm good on my feet. I can you know I can do that stuff. Uh, you know the performing kind of comes comes naturally. I can do that, but a eulogy terrifies me. Mm, why? Well, just it, it's it's a uh, it, it's as as Beth wrote in the summary. Um, you know, Amon is a particularly difficult case, but trying to come up with words to summarize a person's life and to, you know, not summarize it, but reflect the most important parts about them that, that uh-huh. should be remembered. What an immense pressure. Right. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to dwell on this part too much, but, it, you know, as an atheist, it's, um, you know, there's, there's nothing waiting for them up there, you know, for me. And so what they did was it. And so reflecting that and doing it honor is, it's it's a lot of pressure, right? Um, yeah, I'm, I, I, it terrifies me. Yeah. Well, I can see that. Yeah. I can definitely see that. Anyway, that was heavy. <laughs> you know, for all that, um, I think everyone knows it's hard. You know, nobody nobody came up to Sam and was like, "That was rough, man." <laughs> You yeah. didn't do a very good job. Um, you know, I think everyone knows it's hard, and it's generally like pat on the back and, you know, good work. 
Well, I think in some of the instances when you're doing something like a eulogy, it's it's not so much about what you say, and heaven forbid you ever have to do a eulogy, but if you do, maybe keep in mind that hey, here I am imparting my wisdom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. <laughs> but I think it's it's less about what you say. I know when I've heard other eulogies, I'm hearing what the person is saying, but in my mind, I'm reflecting on mm. my specific memories that I have with that person. It's not as important as I'm saying it is, is what you're getting at. Well, it, it is, but not so much the words you say, but the sense of kind of unity and respect, mm. the unity that you're bringing kind of everyone together in remembering the person and respect for their life that you're demonstrating through your words and, um, you know, stuff like that more so than the words, because each person during a eulogy, I think, is going to be thinking about their own things at that time. Yeah, that's probably mm. true. And, and well, you know, I think Sam pulled that off. Sam did a great job. Yes. Although, although in his case, he didn't get the benefit you have because none of those people knew Amor. Knew him. Yeah. <laughs> but, Gilly but, a little bit. Gilly a little bit. And um, most didn't understand what he was saying. Yeah. But man, I, I, it must have been it must have been a hard, hard journey for Amon and or for uh, well for Amon for sure, but for Sam and, and Gilly, just kind of watching his decline. Yeah. And knowing there's nothing they can do about it. Mm-hmm. You know. Especially after the false hope that was given right before they left and at the early part of the journey when he seemed to kind of get his legs under him a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to have that kind of ripped down. Right. Yeah. You know, we already talked about the sex thing a little bit, but um, I think in terms of what this does for Sam, you know, breaking his vows or not, this is a big moment for him. Um, and hopefully for Gilly too. Uh, I hope that Gilly sees and is beginning to see the effect she has on Sam. Do you think she does at all? Um, In the sense of, of helping him be a better man? I don't know. I don't know whether she sees that or not. Um, I think we, I think the reader is meant to see it. Um, Uh but I don't know that, I don't know that Gilly does. Right. I, think, I think, you know, for for the early chapters after they left the wall, she's so, you know, trapped in her own agony and 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 sorrow uh-huh. that we don't uh-huh. get a sense for that very much. Um, you know, in this chapter, she's, you know, Sam is the one maybe wrapped in in that sorrow, and it's hard to hard to see. Sure, I, well, I get, that I is get an the, interesting role reversal. Yeah. I get I get the I like sense that. that maybe Gilly. It's just frustrated with with Sam about him <laughs> not being the the man that she wants him to be to, to you know to take him in her arms and 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 provide that comfort that she needs. Uh-huh. I get a sense of disappointment, but also, you know, I think she can empathize. Sure. You know, it's yeah, that's a good points. Um, <laughs> the uh, the drink in the breast milk thing comes off as a little naughty, but. I think that's also symbolic in a way. I think that, uh, um, you know, breast milk nurtures. And I think that's what Gilly is to Sam. She she nurtures that guy. She sees something in him mm-hmm. that he can't, he can't comprehend. I think of this song by a great band, Delamitri, called What I Think She Sees. And in the refrain, the whole point of the song is him talking about how, you know, uh, 
this his partner sees this great thing in him but he says what i think she sees ain't me at all uh-huh. um he says sometimes she looks at me and says babe my heart just stalled but what i think she sees ain't me at all and it comes around you realize that it's not that he doesn't love her he does but he just has a low opinion of himself <clears throat> and uh and in the in the bridge of the song he says um it ain't me at all to feel so ready to be what I think she sees. And um, just that idea that I'm not that great a guy, but she makes me want to be that guy that she sees. And I don't even know if Sam realizes he's doing it. But he's he's desperately trying to live up to the hero that Gilly sees in him. And uh, and that's really cool and that's really special. And that's what makes their relationship so awesome, I think. And yet it is doomed. Right? Uh, yeah. All that's this, the tragedy of it. All this prog- progress that maybe he's making to gain mm-hmm. some confidence to be this you know stronger, more capable human. Uh, and maybe, yep. you know, maybe it will serve him in the future, but, but them together, they're, you know, it's, it's doomed, right? She's, she's moving on to what I have to think is going to be a rough life for her to be, I mean, not as rough as beyond the wall. <laughs> so all fairness mm-hmm. there, but gosh, I can't, I can't think that it's going to be a, a great experience for her with the Tarleys. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah, uh, under current circumstances with with Sam's vows, and it's almost like a double vow at this point with Night's Watch and then going to the Citadel too. Yeah. Holy cow. Yep. Um, yeah, and where Gilly's going, it uh, it does give you that strange sense of tragedy to go yep. along with how special it really is. But, yep. You know, but some sometimes people come into your life that make an enormous impact, and then they – and then they're gone. Absolutely. Um, yep. The impact remains. I was thinking about back to some former girlfriends that I've had and how I don't I don't hate any of them. In fact, I, I acknowledge the impact some of them made on my life and the person I am today. And yeah, I don't pine for them and I'm not in love with them anymore. But some of them had a tremendous impact on helping shape me into who I am and I'm grateful for that. Same. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of cool how people come into your life, I guess, at the right time and then leave as quickly as they came. But, yeah, interesting. Went further on that than I thought we would, but sorry. Yeah, that's okay. You got anything else on the uh, the old Sam chapter? I don't think so. Shall we move on? Yes. Uh, so before we move on, um, calling this again the Beth episode is the subtitle of this episode. Because uh, she also, as a Patreon supporter, sent us an Ask the Fingers question. And uh, Scad and I kind of had some fun with this and are taking it in two different but similar directions. So the uh, I'm going to answer uh, the question first and then we're going to do a couple more chapters and then Scad is going to answer the, the question. Yeah. So We, couldn't, we um, couldn't just take the question and do it exactly like she asked. We had to like bastardize it in our own way because we're selfish like that yeah we're jackasses 
so what I'm doing is what five songs would you tell someone to listen to to get to know you better? Or what five songs define you? And Scad, your question later on is going to be? Uh, yeah, what, what five books or literary works? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Would you tell someone to read to get to know me better? Yeah. Yes. And um, knowing my propensity for talking too much about songs, I just did it. I actually wrote out one or two sentences about each song so I didn't spend too much time on it. And I'm just going to read those because if not, <laughs> idea. Get, go a little crazy. <laughs> I did the same. <clears throat> um, <laughs> good. <laughs> but you know, we can chat about them if we want to. I might want to chime in on some of yours and see why you like them the way you do and stuff. But uh, here's my five songs that kind of define me. Not necessarily my favorite songs. There's a distinction. But five songs that define kind of who I am. Uh, music is one of the most important things in my life. So these are big deals for me. First song, uh, I've mentioned it here on the cast, but my favorite song of all time. This one is my favorite song of all time. Number 41 by the Dave Matthews Band. And it was while listening to this song that I realized a long time ago that my favorite songs are those that just make me feel something. And no song makes me feel more than number 41 by Dave Matthews Band. That's number one. Uh, next is You Can Make Him Like You by my other favorite band, The Hold Steady. Uh, this song kind of inspires me to make statements with the art that I try to create. But furthermore, it demonstrates that those statements – when you make them with a dash of creativity can be done without sounding preachy. That's something I'm worried about is all the time is sounding too preachy. Um, and this song has kind of shown me that I don't have to be preachy. <clears throat> the uh, next one is Thug's Mansion by Nas. It's not my favorite hip hop song, but it's the song that put hip hop on my map with its acoustic instrumentation, heartfelt lyrics, and hip hop remains one of my favorite forms of art. And Nas, and some people might balk at me giving him this title, but I believe he is. Nas is one of my favorite poets of all time. Um, next is Stay by Lisa Loeb. And I've always loved this song, but I was ashamed of it at first. It's not exactly something a boy in junior high, quote unquote, should be listening to. Not unless you're but, Dawson Leary. Exactly. But then with this, I decided I just didn't care. And this was my first I don't apologize for what I like song. Mm. I like what I like. Again, it just makes me feel. Um, and then finally, River of Dreams by Billy Joel. Mm. Uh, I'd always liked listening to music. And when I was a kid, it was what my parents listened to. And when this song came out and my parents played it for me, it hooked me. It's not my favorite song ever, but River of Dreams by Billy Joel is arguably what popped my musical cherry and made me fall in love with music. So those are my five songs. Awesome. Good insight into the man that Matt is and, the boy, and, and the boy he was, perhaps. The boy he probably still is. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, great themes. I love that. Uh, I like I like your defensive stay, perhaps the best. <laughs> it's a beautiful song, man. It remains one of my favorite songs to play on the guitar as well. All right. Should we uh, go on to Cat of Canals? Let's do it. Okay, here You're we up. go. Are you on the foot? Horse face. Stick with the 
pointy end. Oh yeah, on the foot, horse face, sticking with the pointy end. So Dawn's light creeps into the attic room that Cat shares with Bresco's daughters, commencing another day of selling oysters, clams, and cockles for Bresco. It's, imp- it's important to note that this job of Arya's, that is who Kat is, Arya, isn't just temp work to help her pay for schooling at the House of Black and White or something. Rather, it's more of maybe I'd say an internship or <laughs> maybe even a scavenger hunt. You see, the kindly old man, upon sending her off to Brusco, instructed her to return every month at the dark of the moon to serve at the house and also to report on three new things she learns during that month. So each month, she has returned and reported. And when the kindly old man asks who she is, she replies, no one. And each time, he calls her a liar. And out she goes back again. Uh, Kat reflects on all of this as she heads with seafood-filled wheelbarrow down to Ragamans Harbor, where all non-Bravosi ships must dock. A melting pot of the highest order, Arya loves the bustle and noise of this harbor, as well as learning stories from and trading insults with all the foreign travelers. She's built quite the circle of friends, mummers, petty thieves, sailors, uh, even the same group of whores that we met in the last Sam chapter. She seems at home with the misfits. Uh, After learning some surprising news out of Westeros that the war has ended and that her aunt Lysa is dead, and scratch that because Lysa is not Cat of the Canal's aunt, remember? Um, Cat finds herself at the very same whorehouse whose employees happen to be kinder than most to Cat. And who helped? else happens to be there but our dear friend Darian, the former black brother who Sam had trashed uh, not too long ago. Cat, who finds Darian fair of face but foul of heart, leaves the brothel with him, listening to him brag about how he will soon be playing Bravos's grandest palaces. Remember, he uh, he plays and sings and the little singer-songwriter. He's just great. When Arya asks if his fat friend ever made it to Old Town, Darian replies a little bit uh, like he doesn't even care. Um, he's just kind of like, whatever, he's not my problem anymore. Um, and they, uh, and this is happening as, as he and Arya kind of step into a dark alley. Later, Cat returns to Brusco's and gives him a fancy pair of black boots, then goes to the House of Black and White, where she cleans up and prepares for her service there. The waif is there, as always, and teaches her about poisons and practices lie-detecting skills with her, as they do. The man, the kindly old man, eventually shows up to ask her what three things she learned while she was away. She tells him two minor things, but then she tells him the third thing, and that is that someone had slit Darian the Black Singer's throat. When the kindly man asks who done it, she answers Arya of House Stark. He asks who she is, and she says no one. He calls her a liar again and sends the waif to get some warm milk for Arya. Arya drinks the milk and goes to bed. Now, her dreams that night were of her being a wolf again, but instead of being with a pack, she was alone padding silently by the banks of a canal and stalking shadows. And when she wakes the next morning, she finds that she's blind. 
So ends the chapter. Uh, so warm milk causes blindness. I mean, I always drink mine cold. Uh, yeah, that's what I try to do. I don't want to go blind. We'll have to ask Sam. There you go. Okay. You shoot him. <laughs> we shoot him a, a Facebook message or something quick. You can find this out by the end of the podcast. Uh, yeah. I mean, first the blinded thing, like, so, so you established well in your summary. Um, usually they ask, you know, who are you? And she says no one. And they send her back on her merry way uh, uh-huh. to go work for Brusco some more. And in this case, she said she, you know, she had the little preamble before that about the dairy and the Arya thing. But she still answers the question, who are you? No one. And this time, instead of sending her away, they decide to give her some milk and blind her and keep her, you know, in service or change what she's doing or something. Um, So is she blinded because she murdered someone? I've, I've never understood this. Is this punishment for giving the gift unsanctioned? Or are they, like, rewarding her... And recognizing that she's ready to serve because she's ready to kill like this. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you, that, what do you, go ahead. That's a really good question. And it is the main point that I wanted to discuss in this chapter was the murder and the fallout from it. Yep. Uh, to answer your specific question, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. It feels like that. And maybe we can discuss this and get get back to your question. Maybe it will lead us to the answer. But it's interesting to me that Arya doesn't try to get around the kindly old man. Like she just had to tell him three things that happened. And she admits that she has tons of things that she could tell the kindly old man. Yep. Why did she tell him about Darion's murder and then admit that she did it? as Arya Stark, which indicates that she hasn't let go of her past yet. Um, Does she just know that he'll see through a lie? But if so, why would she even bring up that she murdered him in the first place? Yeah, it's like a cat bringing back the corpse it killed for you. Right, yeah. And she's a cat, interestingly. Um, Yeah, I don't don't know the answer to your question either. Yeah, she could have told him something else completely. Yeah. and 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 it's almost like a, I don't know, like a puzzle. I'm trying I'm trying to think of a, a good analogy, but where you know you keep trying these kind of different things to unlock the next thing in like a like a video game or something, mm-hmm. and she keeps trying different things, and finally she gets the lock right and like moves on to the next level of her training, and mm-hmm. and that thing was murdering someone, I guess. I right. I don't know. It's weird. I. I would think I would think that that they wouldn't be for this. She's just straight up murdering someone. They're all about giving the gift to those people that I don't know have earned it in some way, right? Or if it's been paid for, right? So, mm-hmm. or maybe maybe it was a, a bit of a maybe it wasn't a reward, like you're saying. Maybe this is like punishment. A puni- or punishment or or a way of like, okay, this whole thing with Brusco isn't working yeah. for this particular student, so we need to try a different tact. Right, switch it up. Um, yeah, I, I don't know yet. But either way, this is a very interesting wrinkle in Arya's arc. Um, you, know, you know what's kind of funny about this? I'm going to move on a little bit. It's 
tangential, okay. but but different. Are you okay with that, or do you want to talk more on it? Oh, sure. Yeah, go ahead. You know, all the times that she's been, you know, with at the house of black and white here, um, she. Wait, is this the house of black and white? Did I just call this the wrong thing? No, you're right. House of black and white. Uh, for the whole time she's been here, the kindly man has, whenever he said, no, you're Arya, um, you know, it's, it's always been almost like lovingly, like almost like you're still, you're still this person with a destiny, with, um, all these things wrapped up inside of you that you want to do. Mm -hmm. And there's even a bit in one of the earlier chapters where he's like, this isn't for everybody. Like, he just flat out says, like, you can go. We can set you up with whatever you want. Whatever kind of life you want, we'll set you up with, right? And I get the sense sometimes, maybe, that he wants her to stay Arya. That he wants her to, like, give up and be like, you are Arya. You have way too much wrapped up in in who you are and things that you want to do. It's uh, Have you seen Goodwill Hunting? There's a there, there's a, a brilliant speech there in, in Goodwill Hunting. Ben Affleck, you motherfucker! Um, but there's a brilliant speech he gives there uh, where he tells Matt Damon that the best part of his day mm-hmm. is when he pulls up to his house, yeah, and he hopes that he's not there, that he's not going to show up, that, mm. that that he's moved on with his life to do something else. Let me tell you what I do. Every day I come by your house and I pick you up. We go out, we have a few drinks and a few laughs, and it's great. You know what the best part of my day is? It's for about 10 seconds from when I pull up to the curb and when I get to your door. Because I think maybe I'll get up there and I'll knock on the door and you won't be there. No goodbye, no see you later, no nothing. I'm just left. I don't know much, but I know that. And I, I wonder if every time they send her out to Brusco or wherever, if they're like, I hope she just, I hope she just stays Arya and goes and does the things she wants to do. Hmm. Interesting. Do you ever get that sense? I haven't, no, but it's interesting. Hmm. I, I kind of get the sense, I do get the sense that he, he tells her he wants her to lose her identity, but I, I do get the sense the same as you, maybe to a lesser degree, that he wants her to hold on to a bit of what makes Arya Arya. Do you think they encourage um, that for every student? I don't know. I have no idea. We'll get but into this with Davos After Dark, maybe, but go ahead. What's made Arya who she is is obviously who she actually is, and and the talents that she's bringing to the House of Black and White, many of them are uh, kind of indefinable qualities that she just has. And so I don't think he wants her to lose those things. Um, but at the same time, be able to put that stuff aside, which is what makes this whole situation so interesting is that she blatantly goes against everything he and the waif have been trying to teach yes. her. Yeah. He admits, she admits I'm Arya. Arya Stark did this. And of course it's, she justifies the killing um, in the sense that Darion was a Night's Watch deserter, right? Yep. And as House Stark, she is the one that needs, as a member of House Stark, she is the one that needs to swing the sword uh, in punishment of, uh, or paying for the crime of deserting the Night's Watch. And she she admits that. But um, yeah, this defiance in her, 
is such a defining quality of Arya that she wants something so bad, but she just can't let go of this defying state that she she has. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. And and pretty cool too. Uh, pretty cool, but troubling. Yes. Very troubling because she's justifying it by saying she's House Stark, but she she just killed him. Like like this isn't stabbing the boy in the stable in a in Game defense. of Thrones. Yeah. yeah. Or even, you know, she needed to get past the guard when they were escaping and so she slit his throat. This was just like, I don't like you yeah. and I'm gonna kill you. Yeah. And I'm gonna think up an excuse afterwards. It's straight up murder. But I just don't like you. I don't like the person you are. I don't like what you did to your fat friend, I guess. Maybe he doesn't like the way she doesn't like the way he treats some of her friends in the whorehouse. I don't know. He's she such killed yeah. Him. He's such a braggart. He's so full. Of, he like, totally is. I, it, uh, yeah. There's this this movie uh, Election with Matthew Broderick and. Uh, oh yeah, is it I know what you're talking about. I've never seen it, but I know of it. it. There's a moment where he sees this up and coming young. He's a teacher, Matthew Broderick, and he sees this up and coming student who's just lustful for power and like is so effective and able to enable and can accomplish kind of whatever she puts her mind to. And she's also kind of terrible. And he has this epiphany moment where he's like, she has to be stopped. Uh (laughs) And so like, he sets out to like ruin her kind of ruin her. Like she's running for president or whatever. And it's kind of like, she just hears Darian go on and on about, I'm going to play for this guy, and then I'll be so good there, of course, that I'll get this food and then be on my way to play for this guy. And before long, I'll be in the Sea Lord's Palace. And she's just like, I have to stop him. <laughs> like he, he does not deserve this success. I have to stop his rise. Uh-huh. You know? And, yeah, you can't do that. No, you can't just kill them because of that. Yeah. She's got she's got kind of this this tenuous grasp on ethics and <laughs> morality. Oh, I think she has scary. no grasp on ethics and morality at this point. Okay. I mean, I, I still I still hope that Fair. she can get it back. Uh, the you know the dreams tell. Uh, you know, the Nymeria is mm-hmm. for sure still anchoring her a little bit, and I hope that if she can get away from this kooky cult, uh, that maybe she can recover in some way, but. I think any sense of ethics has left her. Right. And, and going back to your original question of why, you know, the kindly old man took this step of blinding her and stuff. Maybe that's his way of trying to reel her back in. Maybe, Mm. maybe, maybe Mm. a little, a little nugget. Uh, when they're talking about the poisons, uh, we hear about the poison that Jockin used with, with Weiss, Weiss and his dog. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was fun. That little that little nugget, little little reach around. Yeah, a little reach around. Um, uh, all right, you got oh, anything else for this? Go ahead. Just just another fantastic name that could probably be the name of a punk rock band. Um, right up there with Ragged Jenna is one of my favorite names in a song of ice and fire. Canker Jane. Canker Jane. <laughs> yeah. Who is a uh, dockside whore? Who is actually a dude? Uh huh. Canker Jane. <laughs> yeah. Think about that one, guys. Anyways, 
that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I, yep. Uh, yeah. The, uh, one thing that jumped out at me, just a quick line. Darian uh, says, I'm done with darkness. And so I am now calling Darian the anti-dark star. Aww. Who says, I am of the night. I am of the night. Yeah. We're, we're going to get more on darkness in this next chapter. Ooh, we are. Absolutely. Uh, how, how about that for a segue? Good segue. Okay. Um, do you? Oh, I'm Bran, aren't I? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) My last chapter summary was quite short. This one is not as short. This is a doozy of a friggin' chapter. That Mel Mel chapter was good. This one might be better. You think so? It's certainly up there. Yeah, it's a good one. Go ahead. Okay. Five, six, seven. Brandon Stark, won't you come back down from that tower your mind's been flying from? Your legs don't work, but they don't really need to work when that third eye's showing you new ways unexplored. And the summer's gonna come, you know it's gonna come, summer's gonna come, and boy, you're gonna fly away. So, we get the sense, and uh, George gives us some clues with talking about the way the moon looks, that months have gone by since Bran, Jojen, Mira, Summer, and Hodor arrived at the caves under the hill. Per his promise to teach Bran to fly, the three-eyed crow continues his instruction of Bran, while the rest of Bran's friends just kind of hang out. Uh, We learn a little bit more about this three-eyed crow. First off, who is he? The children of the forest call him the last green seer, and he himself reveals that his name was slash is Brynden, or he was called Brynden when he was alive. How did he get to be so half-treesy? Be maybe the next question. Well, Leaf explains that most of him has gone into the tree upon which he sits. Uh, and the tree has somehow empowered him to live beyond a more mortal lifespan. So that's interesting. Why is he still around? The reply they get is for us, for you, and for the realms of men. That's what Leaf says, uh, promising Bran that one day he'll understand what she means by that. Uh, we learn that green seers, who Bran is also now training to become, see as the trees see and come to know the secrets of the old gods and forgotten truths. When Bran suggests that maybe all his friends could become green seers as well, a sadder than normal Jojen tells him that a blessed few are born with the green sight. And Brendan later tells Bran that one in a thousand is born a skin changer and one in a thousand skin changers can be a green seer. Uh, He also tells him that, His own abilities extend only so far as his dreams. Um, That's Jojen saying that Jojen can only have these green dreams but can't – he's not a green seer. He remarks sadly that his part in all of this is done. Quite an ominous statement. As Bran sits upon his weirwood throne, his new weirwood throne crafted by the children of the forest, Brendan teaches him to wear the skin of ravens as well as to hone his skin-changing relationship with Summer. As Bran's skills increase, he finds that flying was even better than climbing. He loves wearing the skin of ravens and flying around. However, he senses other presence when he's presences when he's in the birds. 
Brendan telling him that souls of others whose skin changed into these birds long ago remain with them after death or a part of their souls remains in the birds. And that similarly, a part of Bran would remain within summer should Bran die. Interesting. Jojen tells Bran a little more about the history of the children of the forest, explaining that their true title is Those Who Sing the Song of the Earth, or Singers for short. Now, when these singers would die, they would become one with the weirwood trees, and the trees then would remember they would the trees would remember all their songs their spells their histories their prayers everything they knew about the world and with this downloaded knowledge the singers considered the weirwoods to be the old gods and when a singer dies they with all of their knowledge become a part of that godhood it's a weird thing to kind of wrap your mind around but very interesting when mira and jojen go exploring uh, through the caves, Bran secretly accompanies them by skin changing into Hodor. Hodor no longer resists Bran when he takes over, but instead goes down into a pit deep inside himself. Bran, who doesn't intentionally want to hurt Hodor, silently promises Hodor that he will always relinquish control back to him and that he, that Bran just wants to be strong again for a while. Um, his spelunkings can often be rather scary. At one point, he even finds himself in a cavern full of ancient singers, most corpse-like, like Brendan, uh, permanently nested within their werewoods, and Bran dreads one day ending up like that. Um, seeing everything, being able to become skin-changed into anything, all that seems great. Um, but still, to his young mind, all of that power is only almost as good as being a knight. Uh, Jojen, meanwhile, grows more withdrawn and somber, if you can believe that. Uh, Mira reveals that he is resigned to his fate, which he saw in his green dreams, um, and she's angry that he will not even try to fight that fate. She questions why they even came, and as she cries, Bran thinks of using Hodor to hug her, but she runs away before he can act on that. Finally, after what I calculate is about two to three months, Brendan tells him, it is time. Uh, the singers give him a paste of weirwood seeds to eat. And this taste or this uh, paste tastes <laughs> bitter at first, but better and better as he eats, almost sweet after a few bites. Brendan tells him then to slip his skin and go into the roots of the tree Interesting. And as Bran does so, he suddenly finds himself somewhere familiar, the god, god's wood of Winterfell. He spies his father there, cleaning the great broadsword ice. Uh, Bran, as he's observing this within the tree, he whispers, Winterfell. And his father's startled, like he heard. He even looks up and around. This kind of scares Bran enough that he jumps out of his, his green vision and finds himself back in the cave. Uh, Bran excitedly tells the Three-Eyed Crow that his father is alive, that he just saw him. But Leaf tells him that no, the past has not been changed. What happened is, is that Bran wanted above everything else to see his home, to see his father. And so that desire caused him to actually go there and see that. 
Brendan explains that he was looking through the eyes of Winterfell's heart tree in the godswood there. And he also explains that time means nothing to trees. Uh, they see the past and the present all at once rather than on some linear timeline. And that green seers can look through the eyes of the weirwood trees and see whatever those weirwood trees have seen. He promises that in time, Bran will be able to control what points in the past he wishes to see and maybe even one day be able to see beyond the trees themselves. So later that night, as Bran goes to bed, he seems to inadvertently almost go back into the tree, uh, finding himself in the godswood again, this time looking at a younger Eddard Stark. He tries to talk to him again, but realizes his father only hears the rustling of leaves. Um, he then goes, Bran then goes into like a vision rapid fire. He's seeing glimpses of others in the Weirwood Grove there. Um, he uh, and it seems to go through the passage of time. So starting with Eddard, but then he goes back in time a little more and sees a girl and a boy play fighting. Then he sees a pregnant woman praying for a son to avenge her. Uh, he sees a slender girl kissing a tall knight. He sees a youth shaping heart tree branches into arrows. He sees uh, stern looking men in fur and chain mail whose faces were similar to those he saw engraved on stone in Winterfell's crypts. And his final glimpse is of, is of a bearded man um, forced down onto his knees before the heart tree. Uh, a white-haired woman steps toward him through a drift of dark red leaves. I'm quoting the chapter now. A bronze sickle in her hands. No, said Bran. No, don't. But they could not hear him, no more than his father had. The woman grabs the captive by the hair hooks the sickle round his throat and slashes. And through the mist of centuries, the broken boy could only watch as the man's feet drummed against the earth. But as his life flowed out of him in a red tide, Brandon Stark could taste the blood. And that's where this very creepy chapter ends. I'll uh, say. Right? Wow. Yeah. So crash course for Bran and crash course for us into what the uh, three-eyed crow meant by learning to fly. Yeah. Um, and uh, what an interesting concept, huh? Well, yeah, he, he literally learns to fly with the ravens right. um, mm -hmm. in that chapter, and I have a word of the day for that. Uh, but then he learns to fly in a completely different respect, of, you know, flying through the annals of time. The Annals of Time, yes. Yeah. You want to give us your word of the day? Word of the day! Yeah. Sure, it's a little bit of a, a different kind of word of the day. Raven Bran. <laughs> Part of a nutritious breakfast, Raven Bran will make you fly. Who needs legs when you can fly around a cave and smash into walls when you can share a tiny raven's body with a real not-live child of the forest? Raven Bran. <laughs> You think up a little jingle for that. <laughs> Very good. I like it. That was kind of cute when Bran flies into a wall. Yeah. <laughs> it's his, bird. his first attempt. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And then the bird is like, it's cool, man. Just try again. Yeah. It's all right. You'll it's, get it. Yeah. He just plops right there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I had, a, I had a little bit of a pro. I don't want to dwell on this for too long because I think it's a minor thing, but I don't, I don't understand how there could be singers inside every one of those birds. 
You'd think those birds have got to be awful old. Well, they'd have to be old, but they are they implying they don't reproduce? Because there'd be more birds than singers at some point. Right. Because the singers are on the decline and birds, I don't know. It seems, I didn't get it. Anyway, we don't need to dwell on it. But That's true. But yeah, unless some of that soul is passed into egg when they do reproduce or something like that. Oh, but, like yeah, you along. get the impression that that these ravens though are as old as the singers themselves yeah yep at least the ones in this cave yeah they seem to be uh, yeah right um maybe we'll start on a positive note because there are some cute things that happen in this and i love that for now bran in a book where everyone seems to want to get on top bran seems wholly uninterested in hoarding this power that he has yeah right he wants Jojen and Mir to be green seers. Uh, he mentions that how cool it would be if his siblings could be able to skin change into ravens with him and they could just live in the, in the, in rookery. the rookery together yeah. as ravens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's cool to see that kind of that selflessness of youth still kind of staying with him. You have a feeling that that might not last. Um, but that was one positive aspect they took out of this otherwise kind of ominous chapter yeah it's funny you call you call that a positive i i feel it's a negative i feel like it's a it's a sign and a a symptom of how lonely he truly is um for sure that he's seeking these any sort of way where he can hang on to to friends Uh in what in what he must perceive will be his life just like what he sees with uh with uh brendan as they call him that this is going to be a very lonely life. Can I cling to some friends somehow instead? Right. Yeah. Speaking of Brendan and being part of that wall, I, I completely forgot this little, you know, few sentences that talk about when he's exploring the cave as Hodor and finds this nest of singers. Right. Creepy. Like a yeah. hive. Like half the horror movies ever made have some sort of hive location where like these things are like generating their power and like creepy i dude i don't like the singers i think we've talked about this before i don't like the singers i don't like brendan i know george is all about flipping tropes all over the place but i really think these guys are not good it's creepy and i want brandon to get the fuck out yeah it's it really it gives you this this sense of well it's kind of similar to the mel stuff that before this chapter just like previous thoughts on mel before we had a different view of who she was and then when we dig down a little bit we start to realize some things that change our thoughts a little bit and it's it's that way here for me as well that before the children seemed you know like almost whimsical. these innocent whimsical original natives of the land and they were and they were they were the victims of invasion and stuff like that and now we're starting to see that there's something kind of scary going on um scary to me I, and i'm i, I wouldn't the... go so far as to say they aren't victims that they could totally still be the victims sure but they're sure. victims that that to me seem like they are they're now doing shit about being victims and that ain't good for Bran. <laughs> or maybe they always were. Maybe. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they... What worries me is Brendan. Something about him 
freaks me out a little bit and they are in wholehearted 100% support of him. Yeah. So, uh, that makes it harder for me to, ooh, uh, still think of them the same way as I did before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in direct contrast to Mel's teachings about light and how good light is. Yeah. Brendan encourages brand to accept darkness. Yes. Says direct quote, darkness will make you strong. Yeah. Yeah. I think I had a note about that in the, in the dad section, but I agree. It, it feels very much the opposite of, of Mel's stuff. And I don't know that Mel's good either. We already just talked about that, but in every story ever, embracing the darkness has not been a good thing. Right. (laughs) So I don't know. It's, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I you know, the, back to the singers. Like, uh, you know, the there's that bit. I don't know whether it's in the text or, or just in the movie, but um, the elves of Tolkien talk about how they'll go west and diminish. And yeah, I thought of that as well. You get this sense here too. You know the way Leaf describes it. I think it was Leaf. You know that they're just slowly becoming extinct. And isn't isn't that the word she uses? Because I thought of that same line too. I think she says that the children are diminishing. Oh, it might be. I don't remember now. I I can't remember either. But... Yeah. And to heck if I'm going to crack open the actual book. <laughs> but unlike, yeah, I've got it sitting right here. <laughs> I could. Uh, um, but you know, some these Tolkien elves diminish, you know, somewhat peacefully and helpfully on the way out. Yeah. But these guys. I don't know, man. I it just feels sinister in some way. Well, and it, I agree one hundred percent that it, a sinister is a great word to describe it. Um, it's interesting though that if we go back to Game of Thrones when Bran just knew Blood Raven is the three eyed crow, uh, he has that vision, and Bran, and he, Bran is told by the three eyed crow that he must that what he must defeat lies in the heart of winter which to me means the others. Mm-hmm. So you get the sense that similar to Mel, that Brendan wants to defeat the others. Yeah. Uh, which would make him, you know, per our philosophical discussion, a quote unquote good guy. Yeah. But I, I so. don't feel that. Yeah. Yep. And it's interesting how the waters are starting to get muddier with a lot of these characters. Yeah. And you have to wonder how it's going to affect the main characters yeah. like John and Bran um, to have these influences around them. Yeah. You want to talk about Jojen a little bit? What's with him, man? What yeah. a bummer. First of all, on the time, uh, I did the calculations. I, I tried at least looking at like a lunar calendar, and I think it is two months. I think. Yeah, they mentioned the start of the chapter is a crescent moon. Yeah. Um, and then you get the recurrent of the crescent moon. You get three three times. I wrote them all down. You get sharp as a blade, fat and yep. full, black hole. black hole, sharp as a I blade, see. fat and full, sharp as a blade, black hole, sharp as a blade. Yep. Um. Anyway, so I think it's two months based on how I counted it out. But um, Jojen. We, we we got in the Mel chapter. Uh, I don't I don't think we covered this, but uh, she says something to John about. I think it's when they're talking about Eastwatch. Um, she's saying like, well, yeah, you know, unless you do something, that's that's what I saw. Eastwatch being you know overrun. Unless you do something, visions can be changed. Else, why why would we have them? 
But Jojen's take is not that at all. Mm-hmm. Jojen's take is the vision is the vision, and it's destiny, and I can't get out of it. Right. And yet, I'm not sure we know... Well, I'm pretty certain we don't know what that vision actually is. No, because we don't. Because he hints at wanting to go home. Uh-huh. But then in, in the same breath, Mira is talking about he's given up. And yeah. so it, it almost makes me, putting that together, makes me think that he knows on the way home he dies. Uh-huh. And so the or longer... if he leaves, he will die. Or if he leaves, he'll die. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more on that on Davos After Dark 2 and, and Jojen's fate, but... Man, he's he's not in a good place. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and it's and this is uh, the first that we've seen Mira kind of slip emotionally. Yeah, she's been. She's always been that stalwart. Yeah, font of sense strength, of yeah. optimism and strength, and now we see her kind of breaking down too. And it's got to be hard for these people that worked so hard to get brand to where they are to where he, they know he needs to be. And now they're just kind of cast aside. They have no more purpose. And of course, brand doesn't think of them any less like that, but in a sense that what it is, he's taken his green seeing lessons and they're like, well, whatever you guys want to do, just do it. Kind of yeah. forgotten about perhaps. Yeah. Uh, this stuff with Hodor is Oof. really sad. Um, that's the overwhelming feeling. Yeah, it's it's sinister, it's ominous, but for me, overall, it's like heartbreaking. Like even reading the summary, like almost brought like a sting to my eye. Like I almost wanted to cry because of how sad it is. Um, uh, from Hodor's point of view, talking about him curling up into this little scared ball as this person invades him and there's nothing he can do about it. Yeah. In my notes, I maybe irreverently called it war grape, but it's kind of what it is. Like he's being violated in the truest and deepest sense that you could be violated. Absolutely. Right? <coughs> and Brand doesn't seem to know that it's a big problem. He doesn't recognize I'm just borrowing you. Yeah, I called him selfless before, but this is a very selfish thing that he's doing. Yeah, he doesn't realize it, like you're saying. Yeah, it's it's maybe. I mean, as bad as it is, it, it may be a, a tactic of foreshadowing, um, mm. or, or or maybe like a step along the path, if you want to think of it that way, toward what Bran is capable of becoming. Sure. We talked we talked about this in previous episodes, you know, probably years ago. At this point, we've been doing this for a while, um, but you know. Bran doesn't have the direction he needs. He doesn't have the strong figure he needs to be teaching him stuff at this point. And, and and he's not learning what's okay and what isn't. And if he's willing to do this, what isn't he willing to do? Uh-huh. And depending on whether we're right enough about, about Brynden here, about not maybe having the best intentions, what a perfect vessel for him to use. A young child that knows not that what he does is wrong. And right. and and also, yet, how interlaced with the irony, because Bran is such a good boy. 
he, he does have a good heart. He's got a great heart. Courageous and strong and wants to help people. Uh, wants to be good. Wants to be a good ruler. And yet, he knows not what he does. And is capable of great evil. And mm-hmm. I, I'm worried about him. Him and Arya both, man. I am as well. This, uh... This Weirwood stuff is really interesting. Man, I'm nervous about that too, from a story perspective. Because of the, I think we've talked about this before, but the sense of, you know, what does it do to a story as intricate as this is if all of a sudden you have this medium by which everything can be seen and heck, potentially even influenced. That's, right? that's the worry. Is the influence. Yeah. I hate time travel. I mean, it can be fun. I don't hate all time travel movies. Bill and Ted's is phenomenal. Uh, but but as, as, long as, as long as all he can do is use this as a history book to learn stuff, mm-hmm. I'll probably be okay with it. But Matt, th- this could literally ruin the series for me. If he's traveling the Weirwood net and learning all these things and influencing the past and changing stuff, it would, it would really be hard for me to get past it. Mm-hmm. I'm worried. And you'd hope that Germ wouldn't... I wouldn't think so. Wouldn't, wouldn't, you know... I would hope not. Wouldn't do that, which I, I would call it cop-out. and It kind of feels that way. It's an easy way to, to start to influence Manipulate. Things. And I wouldn't think yeah. he would, but, you know, it's a valid concern. I don't, I don't um, think it is. I'm, I just wanted to... Th- it's probably an invalid concern. I don't think George would do that to himself and his masterpiece, nor to us, but... Uh-huh. It does scare me a little. Yeah. And maybe we can look at it as how will having that kind of power, as you already mentioned, with skin changing influence Bran and yeah. who he is. Right. Um, so you called it the Weirwood Net. That's mm-hmm. kind of the, uh, for those that haven't heard that phrase before, it's kind of the fan name given to this idea that the Weirwood this network of weirwoods is almost kind of like the internet, I think where you can go on it and find answers and learn things that you wanted to do. And of course it being a network and net being short for network. Yeah. Um, but it is kind of like that. The, the trees are kind of like data centers, right? Mm-hmm. And when someone dies, all their data is downloaded into these trees and it can be accessed by green seers. It's very interesting. Not just when someone dies, but, but anything that happens in front of them can be accessed right seems like i got it that that they didn't kind of download their memories and stuff until they died so if like a certain child of the forest dies that's when his memories and everything are downloaded into the weirwood network Hmm. right i don't know i don't know that's the impression i got from the uh the lines in there but i'll have to read it closer yeah. So you're saying Weirwood Tree at X location, uh, none of those, none of those memories that 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 tree has seen, if the tree were like a a sentient being saving its memories, none of those are available unless some green seer had been watching at the time that thing happened. Uh, no, I think that's that's different, and that's what makes this really weird, is that. It says that all their memories, when a child of the forest dies, all their memories go into the weirwood tree. But at the same time, the weirwood tree's kind of seeing stuff too, isn't it? Isn't that weird? Well, unless unless you're saying that there's a 
a child always watching from the trees and the so like let's just use one specific example of one of the things Bran saw. He saw the the slender girl kissing the tall knight. Right. Um are you are you saying that there was a child of the forest there spying on that moment and saw it and then died and it went into the weirwood net or that they were looking through the tree at that moment and saw it and died and it went into the tree? Or I think what I'm saying is the tree mm-hmm. is like is like a security camera and it's recording every fucking thing that happens. And right. if you're look if you're looking in that tree, you can go hit the rewind button and go fast back and forth whatever you want to see. Uh-huh. And it appears that those trees are initially activated. What turns on the security camera and starts it recording for the first time some sort of blood is, sacrifice. Is some sort of blood sacrifice, right? right? So see yeah, I mean that's what that's what the vision seems to imply, yeah. So the security camera comparison is perfect, I think. But then there's a there's another wrinkle that I'm referring to. It says that the children of the forest never like wrote down their histories or their songs yeah. and their stories because when they died, all of their memories and specific songs and stories, particular to individual singers, also went into the trees. So it's almost like multiple sources of information that you can access through the weir net, if I'm seeing this correctly. One is the security camera stuff uh-huh. that the weirwood trees are seeing, but also stored on this network are individual memories and songs and stories go into the weirwood tree. Is that all of them or just the green seers? It seems like that is, well... Is that something that's reserved only for green seers? It doesn't know. make that specific in the chapter. It says it said when a singer would die. Yeah. That's what would happen. Yeah. Is what's mentioned in the text. So not every question is answered. So it's kind of like it's kind of like plugging into the matrix. You plug in and like you can just like I want to know kung fu. And it like mm-hmm. taps into the green seer that knew kung fu and like you can get it. You can like mainline that into you yeah or you can or you can be like i want to go to starfall and see check out the archives of what their trees see yeah if that tree happens to still be standing Ooh, so i like how you said a mainline into you and so what i'm wondering is if yes there is a definitely a line that goes into you but is there also when you make that connection a line that goes out of you do you know what I mean? Like they get all your info too? Yeah. Like an open connection? I don't know. Well, I didn't think we were going to be spending all this time talking about this. It's awesome. Yeah, it's <laughs> weird. I don't know. I hope we didn't go too deep into spoiling territory there, did we? I mean, it's all we're, theoretical. We're, we're staying within the bounds that are given to us in this specific chapter. Yeah. And those bounds are not... Or not super broad. I also don't know how we can spoil because we don't know a damn thing other than what's in this chapter. (laughs) So it's all speculation. Which I guess is a spoiler in and of itself. You don't learn anything else beyond this chapter. Yeah, right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay, anything else in this one? I don't think so, no. Just a quick math check. Uh, One in a thousand are... uh, Skin changers, and then one of the one in every thousand of those are green seers. So that's basically one in a million, uh, which still seems too high to me. It seems like it would be more rare than that, but uh, tis what it is. Right. Um, okay. 
Uh, all right. So next we've got uh, we've got the question that I'm going to answer. You already did your yours with the the songs there. Um, so what yes. five books or plays uh, would I tell someone to read to devour in order to get to know me better? So um, here they are. The first one is The Greatest Show on Earth, which is by Richard Dawkins. Um, this is basically a kick-ass book that proves evolution, or at least it proved it for me. Um, I read this, I was already an atheist when I read this, but if there was a final tap of the little last nail to kind of uh-huh. like secure that coffin, uh, this did the job. And in addition to that, it, it's just scientifically, it's just, it's full of fun little examples of this crazy world we live in and, and how different organisms grow and evolve and change and, and have become what they are. Super cool book. Loved it. Yeah. I've read part of it and I like it. Yeah. Uh, the next one, uh, totally different style, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. So this is by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Uh, it's a Dragonlance novel. It isn't the first fantasy that I saw or read, but it's what I attribute to sparking my love for fantasy. Uh, nice. This trilogy, and then there's a whole set of other novels that go after it and before it, um, and that kind of kicked me off into that realm. And so, check that out. Um, I've been wanting to go back and reread those for the longest time. Dragonlance, yeah, yeah. Did you read any Dragonlance? I did as a as a young kid. Yeah, yeah. Me Probably too. eleven, twelve years old is when I read some of those. Right, me too. Yeah, twelve, fourteen, maybe. Uh, the next one is The Road. Uh, by Cormac McCarthy. Mm. It's hard to sum up why I like this book, um, but the assignment here is to check these things out if you want to know who I am. And, and this is, it's dark, it's gritty, it's dramatic. Those are all things that I love in my media. Um, and it has what I consider to be a very uplifting ending, mm. although that's something that I've, yet to get agreement on from anyone else that's read the book. Nobody <laughs> thinks that the ending is uplifting but me. But um but I, I love I love the I love this tale. Um it's dark and difficult and painful in, in ways, but but so good. Uh the next one is Hamlet. I've talked about Hamlet before. You guys know I love Shakespeare. Religion, death, self worth and self doubt, love, family, just so many themes running throughout uh Hamlet and uh yeah, I love it. Um, mm. uh, Battle Royale is the next one um, this is by Kushun Takami uh, it's kind of like the Hunger Game on steroids I love <laughs> this book I've read it a couple times it's it's really a harsh look at kids put in no win situations where they have to kill each other basically um, kill or be killed it also explores themes of government repression of its citizens there's tons of characters um, yeah I, I like it a lot uh, and then I threw in a sixth one just because I'm a homer uh, and family's a big part of me too. Story Killer by my sister Kelly Thompson. Uh, so I had to put one of my sister's books on here. Story Killer is such a cool concept. It's about uh, the land of story that intersects ever so slightly with our own world and how one person links them together by being a part story herself and part human and what that means for her destiny. It's it's young adult literature, which I love. I love YA books. Um, and uh, so I put that on the list too. So those are my six. Sorry, Beth, I cheated. Cheater. Yeah, I know. So good stuff. Thank you. Good, well-rounded list. Thanks. 
Uh, all right, are we ready for Tyrion? Yep. All right. Cripples and bastards and broken things, but the power of the mind can give you wings. Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies. Tyrion Lannister or Imp, if you please. The Selesori Koran, is what I'm going to call the ship. Selesori Koran creeps along the coast from Volantis towards Slaver's Bay. Powered by wind, driving its single sail, and perhaps more so powered by the prayers offered up to R'hllor by the imposing red priest Makoro and the crew. Tyrion has little love for the faith of the Red God, but knows well enough to keep his mouth shut as a large majority of the crew being are fervent supporters of this faith. Instead, he focuses on Penny, the dwarf who had attacked him in Volantis for being the root cause of her brother's murder. She has mostly been hiding below decks with her dog and pig for the past eight days, avoiding the superstitious crew of the Selesori Quran. Tyrion pitied her. Everything she knew had been ripped from her, but she was still making herself scarce, wanting nothing to do with him. He sits with Makaro, the big red priest, uh, indicating that in his fire... Uh, uh, sorry, the big red priest indicates in his fires that he sees dragons and Tyrion himself. Makaro also teaches him the meaning of the ship's name, Fragrant Steward, before also offering to teach Tyrion all about the glory of R'hllor. Well, nauseous at that thought, Tyrion heads below decks. There was nothing to look at above anyway, just an endless expanse of blue water and blue sky, which was even more unsettling at night when it was all black. The trip was tedium, to be honest. Uh, to make it worse, there's only three books on board the ship at all, and Tyrion had already been through each one of them. He's making his way through one of the volumes again while eating his dinner, when he's interrupted by Penny. He offers her company, food, wine, but she meekly starts to backpedal yet again, wanting to get away from him and not wanting to bother him. He stops her with a question. Do you mean to spend your whole life running away? You're running too. But I'm running too, and you were running from. The hook baited, they have a conversation that should have been had in Volantis. Penny doesn't understand why Tyrion couldn't have just jousted with them at the wedding, Tyrion countering that the mocking he would have received would never be outgrown. Penny blames Tyrion for her brother's death, and of all deaths of dwarves as a result of the bounty on his head, claiming the blood to be on his hands. But Tyrion counters that he is guilty of a lot of sin, but that her brother's death is on Cersei's hands and those that slew him. His own hands are clean. Cue wine in the face as Penny storms out. He didn't see her again until after the storm, a violent beast of a storm that causes Ser Jorah to get sick below decks while Tyrion sticks it out above, braving the wind and rain as it lashes against him. At its conclusion, though, Penny appears and apologizes to Tyrion coming apart in an emotional mess, and we get Penny's story such as it is. Her father, Hop Bean, that's Hop Bean, was a slave and a mummer that gained such fame he was able to buy his freedom. Her lady mother, not a little person, would sing to Penny and her brother at night, but they're both dead now, her brother and her parents, and Penny is adrift. All she, had, all she ever had was her brother and this jousting show that they did, and her brother's death has robbed her of both. Tyrion assures her that Penny will ride for Daenerys, and Danny will love her such that she will find a place for Penny at her court. After that emotional scene, Tyrion and Penny spend a lot of time together, eating and talking. Tyrion feeds her pig and tries to teach her how to play Savas. They grow close enough that Penny asks him to tilt with her. Tyrion answers no very quickly, before realizing that it may have been a euphemism, though this reader doesn't think so. One night, Tyrion makes his way above deck and sees a red sky to the northeast. It's Valyria. 
The sky is always red above Valyria. Tyrion doesn't believe the tales, but Makoro warns that it isn't good to look too long at the sky over Valyria. Still, we get its story. Hills split asunder and fill the air with ash and fire. The sky so inflamed that even the dragons were brought low. Earthquakes swallowed towns as lakes boiled, the ocean itself rushing in to submerge the Valyrian capital city. In the end, the land was a smoking ruin. So why are they sailing so close, then? Others seek Daenerys, too, Makoro insists. And he wants to get there first. Tyrion's thoughts leap immediately to Aegon at the mention of these others seeking Daenerys. Are they seeking her as well? He knows better than to bring it up so brazenly, instead asking Makoro what he knows about these others. Makoro sees only their shadows, and one most of all. A tall and twisted creature with one black eye and ten long arms sailing on a sea of blood. And that's the end of the chapter. Could that be? Who could that be? Hmm. I think we can probably right. spoil that. Yeah. Sure Sure sounds like a Greyjoy to me. Sure sounds like a Greyjoy. Squid. It's long arms. One eye. One eye. Hmm. Which one do we know that only has one eye? Well, or at least one notable eye. So... Uh, Kevin Smith reference, you ready? You know it. So, the Selasori Quran. It says it's a steward, and Tyrion thinks King's Hand. And he uh -huh. also says it's stinky. Uh. <laughs> I am calling the Selasori Quran from now on the stink palm. Yeah, we're going, we're going mall rats. Going mall rats <laughs> on this one. The stink palm. Selasori Quran. Oh, so gross. <laughs> that to to this day is one of the most cringeworthy scenes. Like, yes, scenes in movie whatever for me. Yes, is <laughs> yes, is Michael Rooker devouring? Yeah, just licking his fingers. Yes. And... All that stuff. The licking, if you hadn't show. known about the stink palm, the licking the fingers is a disgusting scene. Yeah, it's kind of gross. It's the things. way he does it and the way it's filmed. And uh -huh. yeah. All right, let's move on. Quite brilliant. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, not not a ton of of crazy stuff. One thing, uh, when they're talking about uh, Valyria, it talks about red clouds rain down dragon glass. Could be a little tidbit to know for later. Mm hmm Because we sounds know that dragon glass is effective against others. Mm-hmm. That sounds dangerous to me. Yes. For sure. <laughs> I'm sure it caused a few deaths. That's why people aren't coming out of this place alive. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, I don't know. Kind of kind of a boring chapter, but I I guess Tyrion may I mean we've promised this before when he was sailing on the river. Maybe coming out on his road to recovery? Finally, maybe? I don't know. Given <sighs> given given Penny to think about and 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 someone to empathize with and, and pity, maybe it's giving him some more real human emotions that he can identify with? I don't know. He does definitely have some some human emotions. Um specifically it comes out a few times is he hates how Penny demeans herself. Yeah. Or how Penny's situations have demeaned her and her family. Yep. Um, he talks about how he pities her, uh, how the names of Penny and Grote left a bad taste in his mouth, 
because they're literally the coins in Westeros that have the least value, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Or not in Westeros, but just in the world. Um, uh, marrying but are those her... his? Are those his own feelings of inadequacy that he can't drown out? I think so. Jumping he talks up. about how marrying her or even befriending her also left a bad taste in his mouth because of the appearance of like with like, like a, you know, he's a dwarf, so he should stick to his own kind. Yeah, Jorah even says something to him about that. Yeah. And he mocks him for it. Mm-hmm. And the name of Hop Bean yes. makes him wince as well. Yes. Makes and... him wince as well, too. <laughs> but uh, I think I think it's a bit of that. What you're saying is that it's, it's his own feelings of inadequacy that are making him feel that way. Yeah. Right. Maybe. I don't know. Just a thought I had. Yep. Uh, I didn't note it in the chapter summary, but Tyrion is still free of grayscale. He's checked himself and seems fine. He's not free of the grayscale dreams, though. Mm -hmm. Which he continues to have. Yeah, he has these dreams of his father, and his father is a stone man. Mm -hmm. Right? He was a hard man. He was. And it's almost like... I've thought about that and like how could it be something about Tywin once he grabs you or once he's grabbed Tyrion, he can't really, Tyrion can't really free himself from his father and he's, he's doomed to the same fate as his dad, you know, because of the contagious nature of the grayscale and comparing that back to him being his father's son. I don't know, but it's yeah. There's some it's a weird dream that he has. There's some theme there, yeah. Uh, there's there's but, one little. Sorry, go ahead. Are you gonna continue? I was gonna. I was just gonna say just real quick. But Penny, Penny does seem to be this. It's not yet, but it feels like she could be his shot at redemption of escaping that. You mentioned him feeling feelings again. Yeah, and Penny to me seems like that catalyst potentially for doing that yeah here's the thing about Tyrion. um and I, you know i might get some shit for this how many times have we said here's the thing about Tyrion. <laughs> it makes me sound like such a pompous asshole like i'm about Over to explain the world to everyone episodes. right like i'm the only one that has a handle on him or something but he's he's capable it, no it's more than that at his base i think he wants to do what's good for people Mm-hmm. I think he took those actions in King's Landing as the hand when he had power to make real change. He took actions that he thought were going to help people. And I think he wants to do that in his heart of hearts. Absolutely. Now, that That's made explicitly clear, I think, in he, his, especially his uh, Akak POVs. He's also extremely flawed with a lot of baggage yep. and makes terrible, damaging, hurtful choices. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, illegal choices, bad, bad, bad Tyrion choices, but, but, but here we have Penny, a a microcosm of the whole King's Landing situation, perhaps someone that he can look at, that he can see needs help, that is you know doesn't have a lot of advantages going for her right now, that he can focus on and maybe turn things around for, and I think that's what you're getting at with the redemption, but it it takes it takes someone that he can help 
to bring it out, right? Mm -hmm. It's not something that he can just arrive at on his own. Yeah, maybe. We've seen that already. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing about Tyrion, everyone that didn't know. Boy, that sure was enlightening. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I sound like such an ass sometimes. Uh, we've, uh, again, I don't think we could count the number of times we've said, here's the thing. Yeah. yeah. And I mean all of us, not just you. Yeah. So. Uh, small man with a big shadow. Did you catch that? We've heard Mentioned that before. Again. Oh, my goodness. Heard it before about Tyrion. Uh, Varys said it in a Tyrion chapter back in a cock. And somebody said of... it at the wall, Amon, right? Uh, yep. He said, I think, well, he said, I think he is a giant come among us. Yes, that was it. Called Tyrion. There's a, there's a, another one I found in Game of Thrones where he says, Tyrion opened the door and threw a shadow clear across the yard. Mm. That's one of the uh, first ones, right? Yeah, it's clear back in Game of Thrones. Yeah, right? like when he when he jumps from the top of the maybe it's a different one. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So uh, we have this theme again. Um, I don't know if it means anything, but right. uh, you got anything else for this chapter? Um, I was trying to think if I should save this for Dad, but so he's on his way to meet Danny, right? Yeah. I We've mean, according to, according to Makoro, he is. According right. to the ship log, he's not. <laughs> Captain's log. Mm -hmm. Heading for Karth. Um, Quaith has said in her prophecy that to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. So I thought, I don't... I don't think this is conclusive evidence, but it's interesting to then equate that Tyrion is on his way to uh, Danny with this talk of shadows. And you wonder if Danny's path somehow has to cross Tyrion's in either a good way or a bad way, I don't know, to get to where she needs to go. If she's a, if he's essential in some way. Just referring to this uh, casting a big shadow comment? Yeah. Yeah, maybe he is the shadow. I think we've discussed what's the shadow that Quaith is referring to, and I think we've talked about a shy mm -hmm. being a land of shadow. Mm -hmm. um, but that came to mind. He's on a course to Danny, and she's got to pass beneath the shadow, according to Quaith. I don't know. So she's got to go beneath him. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. What, I don't know. What I don't know, if I don't know what we're doing. Like, <laughs> she needs to like overcome Tyrion, like he's gonna uh, be antagonistic in some sort of way, or if he's gonna be a benefit of pushing her to where she needs to go. I don't know. But, yeah, yeah, something to think about. Do we need a way to look at that prophecy? Do we need to talk about Makora at all? We kind of t mentioned him a little bit earlier <sighs> in the episode when we were talking about Mel. He I seems feel like he, he merits some mention, but uh, well, he's, uh -huh. he certainly cuts a striking figure. Yeah. White hair, the he's staff like huge. That breathes he's green. Like huge. Yeah, he's huge, and he has a staff that breathes green flame. Right, which is pretty sweet. And he seems all in on the Danny train. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess we don't know him much else, but that goes back to um, this. The lat was it the last Tyrion chapter or two Tyrion chapters when they are in Volantis, he and Jorah, and uh, Tyrion of course came across the 
the prayers happening outside the great temple in Volantis um, with Benero. Yep. And Benero mentioning that they're fully into Danny. So we don't know if the all the faith of Relors throughout the world are behind Danny, but this one in Volantis, which is specifically mentioned as a great temple, so I think of it as some sort of hub, mm-hmm. uh, is is all into Danny. Oh. And we know one that is not in Mel. That's uh, yeah. the only one we know that isn't for sure. Right. All right. Uh, shall we move on? Yes. Let us. Uh, it's time to go into some Davos after dark. Yeah, we got to thank our Patreon supporters first. Yep. But uh, yeah, so we'll start uh, at the dirty cab driver level. Josh C, Warden of the Reach, around Lord of Littering and Littering and Littering and Smoking the Others. Yeah, Jacob M, Lady Fatass Red, Jeff H, Archmaster Rickard of Down Under Rose, Keeper of the Somnolent Gas Mysteries. We got Archmaster June as well, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Jeremy L. Jamie K. Donnerus. Rory C. Sarah from Texas. Tana. Cinder at the Citadel. Connor, Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. And Colin you. And then, of course, at the Reach Around level, so you were right in remembering that level. That's yes. B-Word. B-Word, the Queen Beyond the Wall. And on our Team John level, as always, Misa, the Queen of Gifts and Beauty. Thank you, everyone, for your support. Of course. Uh, on that note of support, just wanted to send a special thank you here to Anthony, uh, one of our longtime blood riders. We love chatting with him on Twitter and other places, and uh, we appreciate your support as well, my friend. Indeed. All right. Let's get into some Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. Uh, well, we got a lot we can talk about. Tonight. <laughs> oh, man, so much. Um. We've said that this could potentially be one of the largest dads ever, coming on the heels of quite a long episode as yeah, well. Yeah, we're so. already clocking in at like two hours and 15 minutes. So you guys uh, hope you have a lot of car rides or runs or some other ways to listen to this. Whatevs. I hope you don't get too sick of it. Let's start right at the top, uh, going back to the Melisandre chapter. Let's take a look at her visions and the different things that she sees in the flames. Yeah. They're a lot of fun to talk about. So um, I just want to go through the things that she sees and discuss them with you. Yeah, I think I got them all listed there. You did. I got them on my list too. Okay, good. Uh, So the eyeless faces that she sees. Yeah. That comes across as a pretty simple one, that being the uh, three rangers. Yeah. It comes across one more time like, hey – just in case you missed this, the first two times we sent it, there's going to mm-hmm. be some eyeless rangers coming. Yep. Sockets weeping blood. Mm-hmm. The word weeping, uh, of course, makes us think of the weeper. The weeper, yeah, perhaps. The uh, the beyond-the-wall warrior. Um, Radio Westeros, just real quick, has an interesting take. They think it is not referring to the rangers. Oh, and I think it's because they saw nine eyeless faces, and of course, nine rangers did go out, and yeah. three came back uh, dead. <laughs> oh, did she see nine? I didn't remember it was nine. And that's referring, and Radio Westeros theorizes that that could be the nine weirwood trees in the grove beyond the wall, where the Night's Watchmen go to take their vows. Mm. And uh, weeping blood makes you think of that. Um, they weep. Their sap looks like blood. 
and they uh, wonder if perhaps that could be a place of some significance going forward, maybe even the place where John's resurrection takes place or something like that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, an interesting take that I hadn't even remotely considered it being anything else other than those rangers. So now nice in, to hear a different side. I was just double-checking the text. In this chapter, it doesn't say anything about Nine, but mm. in the previous chapter, perhaps, where she was telling John, maybe it did mention that. Something, right. Okay, all right, go ahead. Towers by the sea, crumbling against dark tide. Feels like Eastwatch, but again. Feels like it. <laughs> a dark I mean, tide. Uh, does, it, does, that, does that... Do those words mean anything? Is it something besides something more sinister than water? Or is it just pretty language? Pretty uh, language! One thing that I thought of was the um, from the last chapter, Euron's attack on the Shield Islands mm-hmm. and towers there. I don't mm-hmm. know if that has any significance, but it came to mind. Again, you can't just you can't just consider these um, prophecies in a vacuum. You've got to somehow tie them back to to Mel and and everything. So, what are what are the things that's interesting about the way that's worded? Uh, crumbling as the dark tide came sweeping over them, rising from the depths. Mm-hmm. I think it didn't. I think in the last chapter, maybe Mel said something about about whites in the water or something. Um, yeah, that's something that they hear about coming, uh, somebody reported it or they report it. Yeah. yeah. Cotter Pike maybe reported it. Yeah. 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 Comes from what they hear from, uh, Eastwatch reports. Right. Um, we've got shadows in the shape of skulls turned to mist and locked in lust. Yeah. I got nothing on that one. Whites and battle and stuff like that is what I pick up from those things. Curtains of fire wield great winged shadows, dragons. Um, is what I get, obviously. Yeah, through curtains uh, of fire, great winged shadows wield against a hard blue sky. I mean, that sounds like dragons. Which is interesting, obviously, thinking of dragons up at the wall. That's kind of cool to think about. It would Let's be. see. Then she kind of moves on to some other stuff, but then she comes back to her visions again. And she sees a wooden face, corpse white, a thousand red eyes floating in the flames, and a boy with a wolf's face howling. Yeah. Hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. Obviously, Brendan and Bran. and Bran. Yeah, feels like it. Yeah, yeah. Having yeah. this reading order is awfully convenient. It is indeed. Uh, the interesting thing about this one really is what she says right after. Um, mm-hmm. He sees me. He sees me. Was this the enemy? Yeah, she interprets them as being champions of the great other. And why? It's just a face. Like, right? You know what I mean? Like why what what about these uh does does she get gives her the sense that that they're enemies? It's interesting. I mean, and it's that's... it's red eyes floating in flames. That seems like it could be an ally. You right. like you like flames. Uh-huh. And immediately she's like, "Nope, great other." He sees Bad me. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. He sees me like Lord of the Rings with the eye. Yeah. Maybe, uh-huh. maybe it's, uh, she, right after that blood trickles down her thigh, the fire was inside her agony. I mean, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. And again, how's this going to affect the characters who these characters interact with? You know, 
if Bran and John somehow end up back together again, how are these competing influences going to affect family, their relationship, you know? Yeah. That's really fascinating to me. If Mel is saying Bran is not a good dude, John, you guys stay away from him. And right now, John is kind of in where we are at in the chapters is John is not taking Mel super seriously. And right now he's frankly dead, right? But if she brings him back, he's obviously probably going to take her a little more seriously. I don't know what state of mind John's going to be in, but this is the woman who just brought him back to life potentially if she's the one that does that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she could have a little more influence on him if that ends up being the case. Yeah. I mean, all right. I just can't imagine he doesn't come back. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, there have been it's a theories. Matter of how. There, there have been theories out there that will just live in the wolf for a while. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and maybe, but for how long is a while? And maybe we'll uh, get to that one in just a couple bullet points. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, flaming arrows arcing above a wooded wall. Mm-hmm. That one just, I, I don't have any ideas for that one other than just being battle a wooded wall. Deepwood yeah, Mott? That's what I I thought of Deepwood Mott first. But they don't actually... I mean, not all these things come true, I suppose. But that doesn't happen at the Battle of Deepwood Mott. So, um, you know, she's either wrong or we're wrong, and that's not what it is. Or it hasn't happened yet. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, it could be a future Battle of Deepwood Mott, I suppose. Um, but again, why? Why? Because they've taken yeah. it, and it's nowhere near where the battle, where the fighting is at this point. Yep. <clears throat> and dead things shambling silent through the cold. I don't know what that would be referencing either. I mean, all this feels, all that feels like like wall stuff. But uh-huh. I don't know. Well, they're great, shambling great through cliff. the a great gray cliff, hard home. Oh, is that the what hard home looks hard like? Hard home is under a, a great gray cliff. Oh, I didn't. I didn't yeah. remember that. And it's pocked marked with. Uh, with caves. holes to okay. caves. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's probably definitely hard home. Yeah. Okay. So uh, probably this whole thing is hard home. Flaming arrows arced above a wooden wall and dead things shambled silent through the cold beneath a great, great cliff where fires burned inside a hundred caves. So probably the whole thing is hard yeah. home. So we're connecting those two, the wooden wall with, with hard home. Uh, they are connected. Yes. I didn't do a good job of putting them in my bullet points. They're in well, the same even sentence. On, even in my bullet points, they're not the same yeah so um then we get into some john snow stuff right she hears the whispered name of john snow mm-hmm. and then what i just alluded to a minute ago now he was a man now a wolf now a man again which of course many theorize including uh myself that he somehow at the time of his death skin changes into into ghost and then eventually he'll find a way to reverse that and go back into john Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, that's what it seems. That's what it seems like. Like it would be. Man, wolf, man. Uh, let's see. And then we've we've heard this before. The skulls were all around him. Mel had seen this danger before. Daggers in the dark. Mm-hmm. Riddles in the dark. Pray for a glimpse of Azora High and R'hllor shows me only snow. Indeed. So that's yeah. fun. We unpacked most of that. Yeah, I'm sure that's been done before, but I had fun doing it. <clears throat> Certainly is fun to think about. Yeah. 
Um, let's talk about finger bones. That's one thing that we both picked up on. Finger bones. And it's a fun little thing. Finger boning is one of my favorite things to talk about. Well, not just talk about. <laughs> uh, so in the chapter, when Mel is talking about a specific item of a specific person and how that specific item can help with the glamour, she mentions a few specific things. She talks about a hank of hair, right? Mm-hmm. She talks about someone's boots, which made me think of Darion because of this yes. reading order. Um and then she mentions a bag of finger bones, which is so obviously Davos and therefore so obviously frustrating to know what the heck she's referring to. Do you have any thoughts there? Is she just saying it because she knows Davos kept the bag of finger bones? I mean, I started going crazy with this. Me too. I, don't, I missed, I mean, I'm like, maybe Let's Davos. see if we arrived at the same point. Well, probably not because I didn't get very specific. <laughs> But I'm like, is Davos not Davos right now? Maybe she uh-huh. sent someone else instead. And Davos right. is somewhere else, chilling. Uh, dead. Or dead. Or dead. But, but I but I, Huh? At the bottom of the Blackwater. But I don't get that sense because... No. Because of the way he was found, that would have, had, that would have taken quite a bit of manipulation for her to have that happen that way. Well, and it says specifically, she says specifically in the chapter that it just, a a glamour only only modifies the appearance of a person, not their essence. Right, and it's hard to find a guy like Davos in Westeros. Sure. With his his leanings and honesty and um, humbleness and all of it. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, we have his POV, so I I don't think he's dead at the bottom of the Blackwater. Yeah. Um, so what I so 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 what I didn't think really that it was Davos isn't Davos right now because of that because we've seen his POV and we think we know him, um, but it could be something she's hanging on to for the future um, uh-huh. to be able to to do something similar. What? But but one of the things I really came away with was how the fuck did she get them? How did she get the finger bones? She I wasn't mean, at the black. She water, wasn't at the Blackwater. Right? They are down. I would think at the bottom, probably somewhere around where the chain was. Uh-huh. Like, where? How would she get them? The only would thing a bag that of I finger bones of float? I mean, is yeah, <laughs> if they floated, if somehow she they floated somewhere and she picked them up, or if one of her uh, kind of one of her dudes, you know, the Kingsmen or something, or uh, excuse me, Queensmen, yeah. uh, picked them up and. But why would they even think to give them to Melisandre? I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's weird. But it, it's entirely too... These aren't boots. This isn't hair. This is entirely too specific to be anyone else. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's obviously referring to Davos. I mean, we are talking about the Lord of Bones in the same breath here, but Finger Bones is... It's it's too specific. Bag of Finger Bones. Yeah. yeah. I mean... Uh, uh, putting aside how she got them, which I think is a very legitimate and valid question, uh, what could she do with them? My thought there is if she does have them, she knows how much Stannis trusts Davos. Yeah. So if someone can glamour as Davos and get Stannis, convince Stannis to do something that Mel thinks he should do but that he doesn't want to do, yeah, that could be 
a fantastic method for doing that because prob- of trust that Davos has with Stannis. The problem is that I think Stannis knows Davos lost his finger bones. So we then have to believe that he either found them or mm. that Davos is the type of man that would miss them and want a representative version hanging around his neck. I don't know. I don't know that he knows that. Hmm. Maybe. Anyway. And what, uh, would, what would he need convincing to do? Kill Shireen? I mean, take your pick. Could yeah. be could be anything. Yeah, um, yeah I, I just hate that about Stannis. I just... I don't like that he's so manipulatable by her with... Eh, anyway. You should know that killing Edric is wrong. Like, damn it. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. You are supposed to be this, you know, man of justice. Uh-huh. Okay. Me. Moving on? All right. Yeah, let's move on. All right. Uh, is Danny the princess that was promised? Amon's convinced. He's sure it's her. I'm going to an- I'm going to answer in a way that will piss everyone off. Except except maybe for for B fish <laughs> and and Eliana perhaps. Uh it doesn't matter. Uh-huh. Who the prince that was promised is. What matters is that these ideas have filtered down through legend and that there is a sense of heroism for people to aspire to and become. Mm-hmm. And if it's one person, okay. If it's many, okay. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know that someone being these people is the point. Right. The point of the story isn't who becomes Azora High or the princess or the prince that was promised. Right. To illustrate that, when the story of Harkoon, which is another version of, of the Prince uh-huh. of Promised Days or High and the Last Hero and other another culture. When the story of Harkoon was written, nobody said, I'm writing this now. And in eight thousand years, someone will become this person. They're writing the story as it happened or or as they dreamt it up or as they experienced it in that moment. Mm-hmm. They're not thinking of it as a prophecy. They're writing down a story. It's the people now, thousands of years later, interpreting it as prophecy. That, oh, I will be the prince that was promised. I will be the next Azor Ahai. Azor Ahai reborn. Right. Yeah. There's nothing in the Azor Ahai story that I... Maybe I need to read it again, or I'm going to sound like an ass. But there's nothing in the Azor Ahai story that I remember that says, And another shall come every thousand years, and ye shall try to determine who that is. Mm-hmm. It's it's a story in the time, and people are interpreting it that they can be that person also. And who jumps in and fulfills those things as as themes? Could be anybody. Could be more than one person. Yeah. I... There. So there was the original Azor Ahai. There is prophecy that had been later made later that an Azor Ahai would be reborn. In this case, Azor Ahai being sent by R'hllor, because that's that's where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so there there are two there's the original story and then there is a prophecy that was made but again this was made thousands of years after the, the story original was written. apparent happening right that an azora high would return right so there is that and i think that's something like four or five thousand years ago that that came from like books from a shy that say that or something and that's yeah. where melisandre learned about it um but yeah, I really like that explanation and what it's what I lean to as well is that if anything, hopefully these types of legends and stuff will inspire, right? That's yeah. what you're getting at. Yeah. To become what these people need to become. I think as you've alluded to already, if you set, you've outright stated, you believe that the prince that was promised, Zora High, Hercoon, Last Hero, they're all referring to the same person that's what you're saying correct they're referring to Just the same different... they're referring to the same idea i'm not even sure mm-hmm. the people existed but uh, i mean it's just like religions in you know in, in, in our world they're sure. mostly very similar mm-hmm. right and and each they they all you know everyone's just kind of put a spin on on it themselves they're different right. versions leave religion out of it they're different versions of similar stories in all sorts of cultures and mm-hmm. yeah it's 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 not that surprising that, you know, across the miles, people have told this story slightly differently. Right. Yep. And I agree with that. I think it's referring to the same story or the same idea. And uh, if anything, usually it comes down to the two people that it comes down to, the two candidates are Danny and John. And I think if it, if anything, it doesn't have to be one or the other. I would think it would have to be, I think it would be both. I think that would be the song of ice and fire. That makes sense. Is the two of them together. Um, You've got the different prophecies and both of them fit certain parts of the prophecy. Yeah. Uh, And so, you know, Danny being born with the red star with the bleeding comet, awaking the dragons, all of that. uh, And John fulfilling certain things as well. So I think, if anything, it would be the the combination of the two of them that would fulfill that prophecy, if that prophecy even needs fulfilling. But I really like your explanation as well and your idea, um, which I know is you know others have brought it up. Yeah, that's not my idea. So, to be very clear, that's that's all coming from, I, I guess, my interpretation of of Beefish's myth post, which Glass Table Girl Eliana helped, is what I understand from having read it. Uh huh. So. I don't know if I'm that loose with it. I think it still might be fulfilled. The prophecy mm-hmm. still might be fulfilled. And if it is, I think it's the combination of Danny and John together. Yeah. But I tell you, it's hard not to believe in Amon. He's sure. just He's just one well, of those. He's, he's half right here. <laughs> if that's true. Yeah. But he, he's just kind of one of those guys that you don't want to bet against. Oh, yeah. You know, like. Yeah. Yeah. Um. This is so, this line is so interesting to me. Um, Breaking down Amon's things that he sees in kind of his ramblings shortly before he dies. And he mentions that the Sphinx was the riddle, not the Riddler. Yeah, riddle me this, riddle me that. What are the other things he says? So uh, he he mentions dreams, but never named a dreamer. He mentions glass candles, yeah, that could not be lit, eggs that would not hatch. And then he says the Sphinx is the riddle, not the Riddler. 
Uh, care to comment? <laughs> um, sure. Um, Obvious I'm, leanings towards Sorella. Right? Yeah, I, I mean it's the only reference I that I recall in this series to a Sphinx. So, yeah, uh, it seems to lean towards Sorella. Um, I'm not afraid to look stupid, so yeah, I'll just throw some some thoughts out there that are likely very wrong. Um, Sorella is from the Dornish family, uh, the, the the head family. Um, we know that they have uh, pacts with, uh, have in the past had pacts with the Targaryens, specifically with Viserys, uh, mm-hmm. and and they were trying to set one up with Daenerys. Mm-hmm. And my, I've, I've brought this theory up before, um, that I believe that Quaith is a fictitious uh an apparition essentially sent by marwin uh with sorella's help uh uh, trying to guide her along and get her over to westeros in the hopes and and you know i don't know how much command sorella's getting um but in the hopes that she will find her way there and and ally with dorn now things have gone terribly awry with part of that plan um, but Sorella working with Marwyn, uh, in, in speaking to Sam, this could be the Sphinx is the riddle. Figure out the Sphinx, and that's where you might be able to find an ally that I'm hoping you'll help find to take care of Danny, to get her a maester to take care of her, because she's the answer. The Sphinx is, is an ally, right? Um, yeah. that's where, I, that's where my head is. But it's, yeah, I noted. Notably very, 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 very thin. No, I think that's great. You've done some good thinking there. Um, yeah, her teaming up with Sam to reveal different potential dragon secrets and stuff like that and getting Danny and all of that. Yeah, yep. she could She could be that. I don't know what role she will really end up playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my Quay theory is even thinner than the rest of it. But um, It's fun. Yeah. But but if 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 they're trying to if she's trying to reach out to Danny in a in a, a good way in a helpful way, and Sam wants to do the same thing, then they could align themselves. Uh huh. And that could be, you know, you got Sorella potentially reaching out to Danny. You've got Sam trying to find this stuff out for John. That could be something that potentially yep. brings them together. Could yeah, tie, um, tie it back together. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Absolutely. Uh, furthermore, to the Sorella stuff and the stuff that she talks about in her chapters, she brings up a lot of these same things. She talks about the dragon having three heads. Uh, she talks about um, dragons being in the world again. She talks about expecting to dream of dragons and glass candles. <laughs> like a lot of the stuff that she says in her chapters, uh, the one that she said in the from the prologue and later when Sam meets her can tie back to stuff that Amon said too. Mm. So it's very, very interesting. I thought if us, I I think that's plausible. I have two possible explanations and yours is one of them. Um, and you explained it better than I think I ever could have. The other one is that sphinxes do come up a little bit in the series. Where? 
there is something called a Valyrian Sphinx. And what it is is it's the body of a dragon, face of a dude, of a person, of a human. Okay. That's a, that's a Valyrian Sphinx. And, hmm. and so I'm wondering if the riddle is, how do you get a dragon-human hybrid? And the answer, of course, would be skin changing. The answer can be found in Dragons of Autumn Twilight, previously referenced. Oh, Dragonlance. There you go. <laughs> Dragonlance. Pick, up your, pick up your copy today. <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. But I wonder if that's the riddle, is how do you get this Valyrian Sphinx? And the riddle is how do you get that? And the answer being skin changers, which would be John or Bran, maybe even Arya, who knows? <laughs> These start yeah. kids. But uh, maybe that's the riddle, the answer. Hmm. And and in that, so I like I love it, but the uh, <laughs> I guess I just have to play devil's advocate a little bit. Is it then that Alaris being nicknamed the Sphinx, which she didn't have to do, mm-hmm. is? is meant to be a red herring for us to to think about and follow on this. So potentially, yeah. Or maybe Jesus. there's layers. What maybe a, both what maybe dick. both things. Maybe <laughs> both things are true, man. Maybe. There's room for both. There's room for both. Maybe that's meant to lead us to something else. I don't know. I like I like your theory better than mine. Yeah. Uh let's see. Well, where where is that I reference? What is that in? Um so Valyrian Sphinxes, there's actually a wiki article on them. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, oh gosh, what is it? It's Illyrio. Mm. Um, they talk about Valyrian Sphinxes. Hmm. I'll check that yeah. out later. And then um, they see, like Tyrion sees some, I think, in the in the Red Keep, statues of them or something. Mm. They're very, they're, like if you do a search of Ice and Fire... And seems, type in Sphinx, yeah. you'll get like four or five returns. Seems like something you might have seen statues on the on the river. Sure. Or uh, in, I think uh, I keep coming back to Vastothrak. Mm. Some of the spoils there. Oh yeah, maybe. Huh. I don't remember specifically. Okay, we're moving through these things, buddy. Yeah. Um. Shall we talk about let's let's jump Bran. Let's maybe save him for last. Okay. And uh do some fragrance fragrant steward. Stink palm. <laughs> Stink palm. What do you want to talk so, about? Just just is the is this the part of Danny's prophecy that we should be thinking about? Is that what you're Yeah, Quaith mentions that Dan Danny needs to beware the perfumed Seneschal. And the name of this boat that Tyrion and Makoro are on translates, of course, to Fragrant Steward. Mm-hmm. So is that a red herring? Um, or is this something that Danny needs to catch on to and be worried about? Well, if I remember right, um, this ship... Oh, no, it's just Makoro goes over, over the edge, right? The ship still right. makes it to... The ship still makes it to uh, to Slaver's Bay. 
No, they uh, it's kind of oh, like they get boarded, and they get boarded yeah, by pirates. Slavers right? come and take them and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But Makoro is picked up by Victorion. Yeah. But the rest of them are taken by a slaver boat. And does this boat ever even make it? I don't even think so. I think he gone. <coughs> Feels like a red herring then. If the if the boat named the perfumed Senegal never even arrives on the shore, then how could she be looking out for it? Uh huh. What boat did you come in on? Well, we were boarded by pirates, and we're on this one over here. Oh, that's not named the perfumed Seneschal. I'm fine. Hey. So I'm going to go with red herring. But it seems like it feels like too much of a coincidence to not be something. Uh-huh. I mean, what, same... what what would you translate that to? Jorah or Tyrion or Penny? What... Or Makoro? But Makoro doesn't even arrive on the perfumed Seneschal. He arrives yeah. on a completely different ship. He was on it. He was, yeah. Which or, would indicate maybe Quaith or whoever's controlling Quaith, and with your theory, maybe Marwyn or is, is able to see this before the storm happens that throws everything into disarray. Or is the perfumed Seneschal perhaps representative of of the of the Reloran horde that worships her, and to not be to to not be distracted and not take them in because their motives right. are maybe not what her motives should be. Yeah. That's a bullet point I have is relorism in general. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which could be by extension, Melisandre. She ends up meeting her. Right. Um, but I mean, so like follow going back to my, my theory about Quaith and, and that being an instrument to try to get her to Westeros. Um, that could be a message of beware the perfume Seneschal, beware relorism in general, all these people that are flocking to you. That's uh-huh. not your target. Come to Westeros. Don't trust right. them. Don't worry about them. Come to us. Mm-hmm. So again, a broad, broad reach. Yeah, I agree. In that same prophecy, they mention a lion and a griffin, which I interpret to be Tyrion and John Connington. Yeah. And then later she mentions the uh, beware the perfume Seneschal. So there's a separation here, there, mm-hmm. which leads me to believe that when they're saying beware the perfume Seneschal, if if that equals what we're talking about, that it's not referring to Tyrion. Yeah. Because he's already been mentioned. Right. And uh, if, yeah, I agree with your idea of it being relorism and those, all everything that entails. Could be. Or it could just be uh, Krasnak. <laughs> yeah. Or, or somebody right. we haven't met yet. Right. Or Varys, you know, is the other one that people bring up. Yeah. I mean, we're we got two books at least left. I heard you know people in this Twitter chat today going on about it's probably going to be eight and maybe a third. I find myself being convinced a little bit. I mean, there's just so much to wrap up, but yeah. Anyway, okay, you wanted to talk about Arya a little bit. It's just very quick. So what I was getting at when I said I'm not letting this die uh, uh-huh. is. I just, I believe Arya is going to, I don't know why or how, I, I guess just because of the Tide of Nymeria and the emotional Tide of Needle or something, I feel like she's going to snap out of it and be drawn back home and do it on her own. And so what I, that that little, what I'm referring to here is she mentions in, in her chapter, in the Cat of the Canals chapter, that she can pretty much get on any ship with the work she's done with Brusco. And uh-huh. what she means by that is any ship will let her on because she's selling. 
right? But 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 I'm I'm stretching it to to assume she's gained a lot of skills, language skills, how to deal with people, how to walk around, how to walk onto a boat like you own the place and belong there. And mm-hmm. I'm getting I, what I'm hoping is that she's going to snap out of this. She's going to walk onto a boat. She's going to stow away or earn her passage back and she's going to reunite with Nymeria and live some sort of a decent life that may or may not involve Winterfell or her family or anything, but at least become a human again that isn't completely without ethics. After wreaking havoc upon everyone on her uh, list? I hope she doesn't. You'd like to hope that. I do. Uh, I like the idea of her going back on her own terms. Yeah. That just seems something that Arya would do. She's not going to buy into this whole faceless man lifestyle. I can almost guarantee it. I'm glad you have more confidence than I do. Uh, In the sense of the lifestyle, of the day-to-day living, of being servants of the stranger and stuff like that, of doing his work, that's not Arya. Doesn't sound like her. I agree. She's going to take skills that she learned from this experience and be Arya, armed with those skills. Well, and I mentioned this in another note there that we didn't plan on talking about, but since you came so mm. close to the mark, I'll bring it up. Do it. Do the faceless men know that? Every time they hear her say, I'm no one, and they know that she's still Arya, are they like, yeah, yeah she totally is Arya. We can use this. Train, I, I feel like train the old man knows this, yeah. yeah. And they, they set, set Arya loose like Gollum, right? Escaped <laughs> or set loose, right? Yeah. Anyway. We shall see. We shall. All right. Jojen paste. <laughs> I don't get it, to be honest. Let's talk about it first. Okay. There is a popular theory in the fandom. Correct me where I'm missing this, Scad. Uh, you know, I don't read too much into the theories, although I've been doing it more lately, admittedly. Of. Uh, that the paste, the weirwood paste that Bran eats is infused with blood from Jojen. That we haven't seen Jojen, um, you know, about, about a halfway at about from about the halfway point of that chapter. We don't see him anymore. The idea being that he was sacrificed by the children of the forest, a blood sacrifice to help a, awaken Bran's abilities. Um and that is it as far as the theory goes, right? What am I missing? No, I mean, I mean that's it. Yeah. I mean, I I mean I guess if you want like motive behind it that uh perhaps they feel his green dream mm-hmm. power that 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 the blood sacrifice from him specifically rather than Hodor or Mira or something. Yeah, any other person. Yeah. That the green dream power that he has will imbue Bran with what he needs to get over the hump to the next step of his learning. Right. Um. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think that's it. So, I mean, in in favor of the theory, um, we already talked about blood magic and blood sacrifice, and the fact that that seems to be a thing here. Blood sacrifice seems mm-hmm. to be part of part of this whole deal uh the the guy that was running the wolf's den with davos mentions it 
about sacrifices in front of the weirwood tree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We get Bran's vision here uh, at the end of the chapter where we see it happening. Um, huh. We know it's just kind of a part of it. Um, and so, so it's not, it's not out of the road. It's not like, ooh, gross, why? Like it fits narratively um, from that respect. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it's not possible. And, you know, the other piece of evidence there is that we haven't seen him, which is, you know, I don't know how strong that is, but to me, to me, the, the main reason this doesn't fit actually is because mm. of what Jojen has been saying since day one, when we've met him, which is he's seen his death and what we alluded to earlier when we were talking about the brand chapter, that, Jojen is alluding to the fact that his death is out there somewhere on the way home, away away from this cave. And if he's going to get straight up murdered by the children, I, it doesn't seem like that would fit with what he's described as being his end. Good point. And furthermore, uh, he's he has said that my part in this is over. And if he knows the method of his dying, and maybe he doesn't know the method of his dying, maybe he just knows that he's going to die. Yeah. But if he knew that he was going to die, if he knew the method of his dying, then him dying would, or his part would not be over. Because he's, right? yep. He would know that his blood yeah. is going to be an essential part of Brand's development. Unless, so, in, unless, like you said, all he can see is his death and you can't see beyond yeah, that. Yeah, that he's maybe. not going to, yeah. Exactly. Maybe he doesn't know that. the particulars. Yeah. But I still like that thematically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so so I just it doesn't it doesn't seem to fit for me. Um, mm. Now I I don't I don't know that it wasn't still blood in there. But it doesn't necessarily have to be Jojen's, Jojen's. blood. It could have yeah. been any one of the hive members, or um, you know, or it could just be sap, which. Also, if the if the children are going into the trees, the sap might also be tinged with blood. So, we're getting it anyway. I don't know. Yep, I'm with you. I I'd be fine if that theory. I think it's got a lot of things that are intriguing about it. Yeah. Um, and it does, I think, have some problems too. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion like some people think it is. Yeah. Uh, but it's an interesting theory that's out there, and I think hopefully it's fun for you guys to to know about that. I'll, I'll leave you with just one more thing in favor of it, which is just kind of. Okay. It's just in favor of it because, well, I don't know. Maybe you could decide. But the way he describes eating it, and the first one, the first taste was so bitter, it was awful, and it just kind of gets more palatable. I think I've read that that's the way it is when you eat human, when you're when you're in dire circumstances mm-hmm. and you have to. At mm-hmm. first, it's awful. You can't get over it mentally. It's bad. Texture, no good. All of it bad. And then slowly you kind of, it's okay. Yeah. But as it is, but I don't yeah, know. That, I, past the part that it's a person. Yeah. yeah I don't know. Uh, but I don't know that it's evidence. It's just, uh, the, you know, that he, he spent, that's interesting. He spent some time purposefully outlining how it felt to eat it. And yep. there might be a reason for that. I don't know how it came sweet. Yeah. That's a really good point. So we went ahead and discussed part of this on the cast already, but um, the the path that Bran is going down, um, and I'm wondering if there's anything Davos after Darky that is left to discuss in that regard. Um, 
We, of course, get kind of a code of ethics, if we could call it that, from Varamir's POV, at least among the free folk skin changers of <laughs> things you don't do. A right? weird person to get a code of ethics from, but yes. Right? <laughs> the rules of skin changing. And one of them, of course, is you don't skin change into other humans. Uh, and he, of course, fails it. He attempts to do it at the end and, and doesn't succeed. Um, Blood Raven either doesn't follow that little code or that rule book or else he is just not explaining it to Bran. Uh, and does that add to the sinister nature of all of this? What are your thoughts there? Uh, yep. I, again, I'm, I put myself out there to be mocked when the books come out, but I think he's not telling them this stuff on purpose. Mm-hmm. I think the rules that Verimer set out, for the most part, make sense. They seem like good rules to follow. Uh, and Brendan, I don't know whether he follows them himself or not. But he's for sure not teaching them to Bran, and it feels like he's not teaching them on purpose. Because he doesn't want him to think there's anything wrong with this stuff. He doesn't want uh, Bran to follow rules or be inhibited by such simple things as that. Yes. I don't think he wants to think that anything he can do with his gift is wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's dangerous. It's like Mel. Yep. What What do I need to do with my gifts to achieve my result? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get the sense that Brendan isn't like passing on his legacy. Like, one day I will be gone and you must carry the torch, Bran. No, he's using Bran to do something that he he's either can't using do... Brand. Yep. Or doesn't, or knows that doing would kill him or something. Yep, that's yeah. my headcanon. We're aligned here on this. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if, I don't know if uh, I believe it, but I, it's certainly something I've thought. Yep. Uh, he's so weak and he is old, and like he talks about being tired and like, so I, I, it could very well be that he's passing it on. But at the very least, I think... Even if I don't believe that it's sinister and that he wants to live beyond it, at the very least, I think he wants Bran to do something that he's not capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And we get little hints that Bran may be, may be that capable. Yeah. To have even greater power than yes. other Green Seers have had. Yeah. Yep. You know, they they keep bringing up the thing about how Bran whispers something and it catches the attention of the people that are around, like Eddard and. I don't um, want to hear that. Happens with Theon, right? Mm-hmm. And and the children of the forest and Brendan are like, no, it's nothing. It's just the trees. They'll never understand you. Yeah. Uh, that just immediately says to me that Bran is going to figure something out, some way to communicate. But but we've Which seen... Which, of course, is dangerous. We've seen in the past already points where those characters sitting in front of the weirwood trees are mm-hmm. like, what was it? Was that? What was that? Yep. And it goes along yeah. with the fact that they would believe in the power of these weirwoods. If throughout uh-huh. history they had examples where they felt like they were talking to him. I mean, how many religions are are based on this personal relationship where you believe that, you know, a deity is talking to you and helping you and giving you guidance? I, if if they actually heard something from one of those trees, that would go a long way. Mm-hmm. I don't want to believe it, though. That gets back to the time travel thing, and I'm scared. Yeah. How does that change or influence, you know, events that happen after that? All of a sudden, Ned doesn't even go south, and the doesn't whole go to different. Winterfell. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's not get into that. Yeah. Um, I had a little thought. I'll just bring it up here that 
with uh, Brand doing this stuff with Hodor. I would want. I wonder if if one day Hodor fights back, and I would love to see that and go. No, you are not doing this to me today. Yeah. And if that could maybe serve as that wake up call, that kind of that I would hope would happen and would would wake Bran up to the dark path that he's going down and make him realize that what he's doing isn't right. That'd be a great thing to read. I think narratively that would fit and be a really cool thing. Yeah. That Hodor. Hodor becomes it's... Nodor. Yeah. <laughs> Very good, Scad. Mm. It's twelve thirty and you're still spitting them out. Hey, you know what? No rest for the wicked. Let's uh let's bookend this dad session with um with how we started it. Uh of going down the list of what you know, we did it with Mel, let's do it with what Bran sees. And see if we can't figure anything out. I think I'd rather do it with Bran than with Mel. <laughs> well here we go. She's scared. Uh, list of what Bran sees. We got Ned cleaning ice. Yeah. Duh. We've we got saw, we saw that in real life, maybe. Sure. It yeah. might have been the very same scene when Catelyn comes and inter- interrupts him. It could have been. Yep. Very good. Uh, we get Ned praying in the heart tree sometime before that. First of all, just to make the point that it appears Bran's moving further and further into the past because the tree is getting smaller and younger as he goes through this dream. Yes. So that's how we can determine that he's moving backwards. Um, Ned praying that two boys will become love each other like brothers. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact quote, but and that his wife will one day forgive him. Yes. So, Clear, John, yeah, Rob, clearly John and Rob. Yep. That whole situation with Cat seems like it. Um, we've got two children playing with swords: a boy and a young, or a girl and a younger boy, and the girl's kicking the boy's butt. Yeah, that's Lion and Benjamin, no doubt, right? That's who I'm picking up. Love it. And, uh, you know, we got the... um, uh, Maybe shows Lyanna's inherent fighting ability. She's got some natural ability there. Yes. Um, Are you you mocking me for my Night of the Laughing laughing Tree stand? That's my Light of the Night. That's my stand as well. I, I made a point that it might not be Lyanna when we oh. talked about this. Sure. And, and everyone mocked me everywhere. Okay. I still think it's her. I was mostly devil's advocating that, but... We're pretty good at that. Yeah. Okay. Then we have to get... We have to really take deep dives into things. Do you have any thoughts on the woman heavy with child who she comes she comes naked out of the the little pond in front of the god's wood she's I'll, pregnant i'll be honest I, son who avenger i wanted to go look in the history book and see if i could find anything that added up with this in the rough time frame um but i just didn't do it i feel bad about <laughs> it there's nothing concrete that i could see maybe someone can correct me if i'm missing something there uh now if we got to go in timeline here so if the next one that we're going to get to is Hodor, or I'm sorry, Dunk, from Dunkin' Egg. Yep. If that is, we'll return to that. But if it, if it has to fit somewhere between Liana and Benjen as kids and Dunk, um, there was Willem Stark, who was killed during Raymond Redbeard's invasion. 
remember that guy came over the wall. He was a king beyond the wall and yep. came south, and mm-hmm. uh, Willem was killed. Um, his wife's name was Melantha Blackwood, mm. and uh, maybe her. Those Blackwoods know, are feisty. Avenge her husband's death. Um, there's also Willem's son, Edwile, who later died too. It could have been, could have been him. Those are the only things I got there. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we don't know. We just don't. Yeah, uh, we got the slender brown-haired girl kissing a knight as tall as Hodor. Yeah, I mean, I've just I if I didn't put this together myself, I've just read this a bunch of times that that everyone yeah. believes this to be uh, to be Nan and 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 Dunk. Uh huh. Um, you know, we we know we do know that Dunk was going north with Egg. Um, he did visit Winterfell. And, and visited Winterfell. Um, so, you know, I, it, it seems like a guess that this tall guy spat out a son that was also tall. But I'll believe it, right. sure. I don't know, sure. <laughs> That's one of the more tragic things in the history of these, uh, of Germ's publishings, is that he was going to publish a novella, Duncan Egg, revolving around the she-wolves of Winterfell. Yeah. And he didn't quite get it done in time to be published, so he released The Princess and the Queen instead, which is more Targaryen stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was supposed to uh, Tell at least story. include the story of Duncan Egg going clear up to Winterfell. Yeah. yeah. Um, but of course we know that Hodor is a descendant of Old Nans, right? Yes. So that's part of where this theory comes into. Kissing a knight as tall as Hodor. Yep. A um, couple more. A dark-eyed youth who is making arrows from weirwood branches. Yeah, I looked into this one. Uh, and, and when I looked into it, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. It was uh-huh. Brandon Snow, who uh, I think it was Brandon Snow, a bastard brother of the Lord of Winterfell at the time that wanted to try to take down Aegon's dragons with some weirwood arrows, right? Yeah. Well, but then he Kriegan, was just going was to Kriegan. assassinate the dragons. Yes, right, yeah. yeah. Like while they slept or while the camps were waiting to fight the next morning. But yeah. then was it Cregan, the lord who knelt? Torrin. Torrin, the lord who knelt. Uh, he basically uh, gave up before he could try, right? Yep. Like, nah, I think I'm just going to surrender. Yep. Good decision. Um, then we, he gets a look at the hard, stern, bearded men. Um, yeah, I, I mean, these guys, I think it's just meant to show us the passage of time. Yeah. We're going we, clear back to first men Yeah, and beyond. Yeah. yeah. We, we've, we've had this same description, these hard bearded men before when we were in the crypts. And so yep. I think this language is meant for us to recall that and say, oh, it's going back in the, the line of the, the kings of the crypts. So. Yeah, I think it's meant to be a bridge to show us that the next vision that he sees yeah. of the white-haired woman with the bronze sickle killing the guy in front of the weirwood tree yeah. comes clear back even maybe before this first men Stark stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, do you have any thoughts about the bearded man and who he is or the white-haired woman or the captive? Gosh. No, there's there there's I don't like it. Um, 
there's some I, I read a thread uh, on on the uh, wiki vice and fire message boards there um, that thought it was the knight's king's wife uh, was the white-haired woman mm-hmm. doing the killing mm-hmm. um, and the bearded man might be a Stark that's the Night's King, or the Night's King could be the captive that they're killing um, once, you know, they've, they've fought and defeated him. I don't think that stuff adds up. Um, I think what I remember about the Night's King story is that he was defeated at the Wall, so I don't know why he, he would be at Winterfell or at this Heart Tree. My sense of this story is just that this is... And th- this was mentioned in the thread, too. This is not an original thought of mine. Um, but it's the, the thought I identified with is that this is this is as far back as this werewood tree is going to go that Bran can see and this is likely the founding of Winterfell it could could be when the pact was made for there must always be a Stark in Winterfell maybe mm-hmm. the castle sprung up right after this but this is when the werewood tree uh started yeah and um, was this the blood magic that activated that weirwood? Well, you'd you'd like to say yes, but if so, then it shouldn't remember the murder because it wouldn't have seen mm-hmm. the murder until the blood was drank. So, I don't know. Unless it can reverse back a few seconds. Or right, so. right. It's but the to, sacrifice yeah, happened. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, very good. So, um, yeah, that was an interesting thread to read. It was six pages or so long and a lot of people defending their ideas and it was it was fun to read but yeah i, I didn't buy the knights king stuff um it's just not enough there not enough there and yeah i mean a lot of the evidence is well she had white hair well <laughs> okay. you know so do old people <laughs> so to me it, it was more just meant to be this is this is signifying the beginning of time and showing just how far bran can go and just how mm-hmm. far he can see um and and really the pinning the start of Winterfell and the founding of that tree and everything. That's just kind of dressing, icing on the cake right. to make it a little more fun. <sighs> Love it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, This has been a good dad session. It's, it's been, been a really good, good dad session like this in a long time. Uh, we haven't. And I think this is the longest episode now that we've ever recorded. Maybe. Probably, yep. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to discuss? I had a couple more things highlighted, but I'm... I think we hit them all. Um, I had Mel's past as Melanie. Oh. Uh, maybe I'll just direct people to that. Have you read um, Yolk Boy's theory on that, of who he thinks she descended from? Um, remarkably well-researched. I... I've read a theory. I didn't remember that it was Yoke Boys uh, about it about her being Brendan Rivers' daughter from mm. um, what's her name? Uh, S- uh, Shira. Shira Seastar. Shira Seastar. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I did read something about that. I didn't remember that was Yoke Boys. Uh, go yeah. ahead, fill us in. It was great. So <clears throat> maybe I'll just point people to the theory. You can look up Radio Westeros's episode. I think it's their third episode on Melisandre where he outlines this. And it's also written out on their Tumblr site. Um, you could probably just Google Radio Westeros Shiera plus Blood Raven equals Melisandre. But it goes through how all of 
pretty much everything in Melisandre's physical appearance goes back to descriptions that are given of either Shira Seastar <laughs> or um, Brendan Rivers. That's like funny. even saying that like uh, slim of waist and full of breast is like a, a thing that is used to describe Shira. Uh, a heart-shaped face. Yolkboy mm-hmm. makes particular mention of that, that it's only mentioned like a couple of times ever in the books. Mm-hmm. And those times are Melisandre and Shira. Um, uh, also mentioning the tallness, the blood raven, the white skin, the red eyes. The only thing that's not there is the hair color, the red hair color. Yolkboy makes a case that it could perhaps be um, a dyed hair. And even pointing back to a So Says Martin talk where he mentions that Westeros has better technology with dyes than medieval (laughs) Europe did. And he, Gurm actually points out they were able to get consistent colors such as scarlet, crimson, or burgundy. Oh, jeez. It's like he he calls out red being the color of the dye. So, um... Well researched. He he goes through a whole bunch uh, and it's very compelling even going into why that would fit um yeah that's 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 the part i'm interested in maybe not even the why but the mm-hmm. how it's right. it's pretty rare for even targaryen bastards to be jettisoned out to, as slaves mm-hmm. so yeah I'd, I'd be interested in reading that myself I, I feel like i had this conversation or argument with somebody before making my same having my same question i wonder where that was no, I think you know what I think it might have been on the Facebook group, the 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 book club. Mm. Let's go back and look at that again. Well, it uh, it would tell us that Mel is potentially very old. Yeah, yeah. She was the daughter of them, that, like uh, seventy so, or something. At least, yeah. yeah. And that ruby at her throat is actually her own glamour. Um, you know, and then it talks about that you know with. Uh, the kingdom bled for Shara Seastar, and so she could have fled when Blood, Riv- Blood Raven was imprisoned, um, and if she had a child, taken it with her, and somehow ended up being sold into slavery or something like that. Um, mm. Gosh, he goes through a bunch of stuff. Even how you know Blood Raven descends from Blackwoods on his mother's side, yeah, and how all these Blackwood names start with Mel, mm. Melissa. Malara, yeah, da 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 da. Wow, Melanie. So some compelling stuff there. But yeah, that's fun. Go and check it out, guys. I'm not doing it even uh, remote justice here. So check it out. Shall we go to bed? We should. After I upload this podcast for you to edit. Yay! Yeah. Looking, I won't do it till at least Monday. So if you want to just go to bed, do it. <laughs> no, it's not, that's all right. Uh, shall we sign off? We shall. Okay, that's it for Davos After Dark. Uh, a great one tonight. Thank you, Scad, for your thoughts. They were enlightening. Thank you for yours. Uh, that was a lot of fun. It was. And can't wait to catch you guys next time. Hopefully you made it all the way to this point of the episode. So we will just do some quick sign-offs now. So this is Matt signing off, reminding you that false light can only lead us deeper into darkness good one mine's uh much simpler uh this is scad signing off with a quote from the cadet now chapter we shall strive to make up in drunkenness what we lack in oarsmen you will <laughs>
<laughs> Bye, everybody. Night, everybody. Welcome, everyone, to Davos Fingers, episode 64. Matt is here with me, as always, and my name is Scad. Let's get going for episode yes. 64, The Trappings of Power. I'll cut that yes part of me out. <laughs> uh, you threw me for a loop there. I did. I mixed it up. Uh, anything else? Uh, nah, we're good. You okay? We always are good. What? Oh, yeah. What are you worried about? Oh, I'm not worried about anything. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Because right. we always end up, just yeah. ends up fine. So yeah, I'm we'll good. Do. Yeah, we'll do fine. <laughs> <coughs> the dew has been cracked. The dew has been cracked. You got water there? It's tea, actually. Good. Yeah. Um, I might go for a refill at some point if my throat isn't doing too well. But I've also got a couple cough drops, so I'm, uh, I'm ready. Mm-hmm. I'm prepared. Right. And I had never, oh. I had never known that cough drops are like, they're just like any other medicine and you can kind of like overdose on them. Oh yeah. And I was down here working at home and my wife comes down and I got like nine wrappers on the couch and she's like, you're supposed to have one of those every three hours. I'm like, <laughs> hmm, I've had nine in four hours. You'll be fine. <laughs> oh yeah. You know. In Brazil, they sell those in the candy aisle. Yeah. And they're like breath mints for them. They, huh. like, they eat them like candy. Yeah. It's well, weird. it's healthier than candy, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Blood Riders, we loved having you along for the ride of episode 64. Uh, a few songs in this episode. First of all, we had NY State of Mind by Nas. Oh, that song's good. It's from his debut and pinnacle album Illmatic one of the greatest if not the greatest hip-hop album of all time the greatest in my opinion Uh, we also had a song called what I think she sees a beautiful ballad by a band called Del Amitri they're out of the UK and the name of that record is uh, some other suckers parade next we had uh, that little throw-in by our friend Beth, Lightning Crashes by Live. That's from their album, Throwing Copper. And then finally, we threw in Learn to Fly by the Foo Fighters. Off of their album, There Is Nothing Left to Lose. That's my favorite Foo Fighters album. Anyways, hope you guys loved the episode as much as we loved recording it. And can't wait to catch you next time. Later, guys. Mm-hmm.